0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 74 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, boy, do we have a lot to talk about. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking at length about the nominations for the 92nd Academy Awards. But first, we'll be giving our penultimate review of a 2019 movie, a movie that did unexpectedly, maybe quite well at last week's Golden Globes, and that we'll be talking a fair bit about. In the back half of this show as well, that is, of course, Sam Mendez's 1917. And with me to give that review, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I've been better, Scott, but you know, I think I feel about how I usually do on Oscar nominations day, which is uh, frustrated, disappointed, but not surprised, perhaps. I think is probably the uh, the mentality that governs this day, mostly uh, disappointed, but not surprised. Um yeah, we'll get into it, but I think there are a lot of good things, which you'd expect because it was a great year, and when,
0: there are some bad things, and when the Oscars are bad, they're usually very, very bad. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things where when it goes out uh, in a blaze of glory, it goes out in a burning inferno of A Michael <laughs>
1: Bay-style explosion.
0: Yeah, amazing that Six Underground didn't get nominated for uh, what it was worth.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, um, no. I'm shocked.
0: And, and to your point, I will say, to start the podcast off, since it's the first half of the podcast is going to be, I think for the most part, so, you know, pretty positive. But to start that out, I will say, just looking, making my list of ranked Oscar-nominated movies for the year compared to – and then going back and looking at last year, it's like, wow, I'm just – So like seven of the eight movies, six of the eight movies, I'd say comfortably six of the eight movies are just absolutely fantastic films. Seven of the eight are great films. And then the last one could be or I'm sorry. nine. there's nine. Yeah, my apologies. There's nine. So like seven of the nine films. Fantastic. You know, the eighth one on my list. I'm like, you know, it's it's definitely not a bad movie. Thought it was very good. It's not necessarily a must see film for me. But then the ninth one, I mean, not as bad as vice last year, but it's a contender.
1: Yeah. uh, I mean, I feel the same way. I tweeted this out earlier, but when your fifth best movie that you have nominated in your category is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's a pretty good category. I mean, it's hard to find a lot to say about that. But of course, you know, there is one movie which kind of casts a a black shadow over um, the rest of them. But we'll get into that.
0: Yeah, we'll get into that. But to your point, like, I think i mean i i do wish we almost re-recorded our best of the decade episode because i i've got some new additions to my best of the decade list I've and one yeah yeah you know and several of them you know being nominated here and all coming in the last year i just think it's been an incredible year and the fact that last year only i think one of my top four or no one of my top five probably goes deeper than that but one of my top five was nominated for best picture is this year like my top three were nominated i mean that's it's a it's a fantastic year
1: yeah, it absolutely is.
0: All right. Well, Scott, without further ado, let's dive into the trenches to discuss 1917, written and directed by the recently knighted Sir Sam Mendez, based on a story that his paternal grandfather told him. 1917 is a World War I film, maybe unlike any you've ever seen before, complemented by its one-shot-like cinematography by the goat, Roger Deakins, and by its sweeping score by Thomas Newman. And by the story that it tells, 1917 is set over the course of less than a day in northern France in April 1917, when two young British soldiers, Schofield and Blake, played by George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman, respectively, are chosen to deliver an urgent message to the 2nd Battalion of the Devonshire Regiment, in which Blake's older brother is enlisted, calling off their planned attack on German forces who have feigned a retreat to draw the 2nd Battalion into an ambush they must deliver this message before dawn or all 1600 men will be killed scott did the full production of 1917 leave you positively overwhelmed or did it look like something pretty but ultimately hollow and of little substance
1: yeah you know scott i think the most obvious comparison piece here is dunkirk of course in terms of you know recent films that was this war movie that um focused on being very immersive and giving you a very immersive experience. Um, Obviously didn't have the one shot technique like we see in 1917. uh, But I think Christopher Nolan really succeeded in making you, I mean, it's cliche, but making you feel like you were in the war in that movie. Um, I think for us where that movie, um, you know, maybe was a little lacking was in the character development and, 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 uh, storytelling department where I think it was missing a heartbeat. I think, um, you know, that, that made you feel connected to everything that was going on, e- even though, like, I admire the spectacle, I still think it's a great movie, um, and so that was my concern going into 1917, right, especially because, you know, reading about this one uh, shot technique, um, you know, has been done in films before, Birdman was an example, um, the Emmanuel Lubezki there, um, and, you know, obviously, we would be in good hands here with Roger Deakins doing that, but, when hearing about that, my, of course, my reaction was kind of, is this just going to be a stunt, right? Is this going to be something that you look at and say, Oh, wow, that was impressive how they pulled it off. But, um, that's all it was. And I think that's kind of the, what the, some of the initial reactions were suggesting there were a lot of comparisons to like a video game. Um, you know, in that you're, you're watching something really cool and immersive going on visually, but, um, you, you don't feel connected to it at all. You know, you don't feel like you're in control. You're watching someone else play the video game, basically. But I don't think that those, those complaints are well-founded, honestly. I think this movie absolutely does have the heart that Dunkirk maybe was lacking a little. It's not a particularly complicated story. It is a uh, pretty standard action movie setup of uh, go to the place, find the guy, tell him the thing. I mean, that's basically the whole plot right there. And, and that's fine. I think, I think some people have been having trouble with that. This movie maybe doesn't have like a lot of critique on war or anything like Manola Dargas, I know in her review in the New York times was, um, talking about the fact that, uh, this movie doesn't seem to come down as being, or it's not anti-war enough. Um, which I think is kind of silly. First of all, it is anti-war. Um, second of all, uh, it's an action movie, right? Like I think if you had to classify this as uh you know a, a, a in particular genres, it's part action movie, it's part like suspense thriller honestly and I think that's kind of the element that surprised me the most is that of all the people that Mendez seems to be borrowing from, I think one of the chief people he's borrowing from is Alfred Hitchcock here. I mean, we'll talk I'll talk about the fact that one of the big set pieces in this movie Borrows one of you know is exactly I'm not going to say rips off, but I mean it is kind of what he does to one of Hitchcock's most famous set pieces from North by Northwest. But um, I was surprised at how uh, suspenseful certain sequences are in the movie, Um, and a lot of it comes from the technical aspects of the movie, right? Like that one shot technique really builds the suspense by uh, you know you don't you don't know what's going on outside the what you're seeing on camera, right? Like and what you're seeing on camera is often the perspective of the character facing towards the character. So, um, you know, no matter what, you know, you're not going to be seeing the full range of, of what's going on here. And that uh, almost like we talked about with waves, with what Trey Edward Schultz did in that movie, um, the way that the, the camera circling the car kept you in a constant state of anxiety because, you know, you, you couldn't see certain parts of the screen and what was going on. Like you couldn't see parts of what the characters were seeing. Um, and, I think that's, you know, done to even more effect here. And I think it works incredibly well. In in addition to just being really impressive and how they pulled it off, I think it absolutely builds the suspense for the movie and and is, is, you know, it is effective in that way as well on a visceral level. Um, And like I said, yeah, I think the story is compelling. These two guys make for, um, you know, compelling heroes from the beginning. I think the story is set up very efficiently. And um, I didn't, find a a lot of trouble connecting to them and and, you know there's ideas of family and the toll that war have taken the toll that war has taken on them which i think is where a lot of the critique of war comes in but uh, yeah so I, i felt wrapped up in the characters as well um even if the story isn't like you know again expansive and complex and even if it's a if it's a pretty simple action movie setup. so yeah overall scott i was blown away by this movie um i think that there were some shots that just had my jaw on the floor. I think there's like one or two shots, which are some of like probably the greatest shots maybe that I've ever seen. Uh, I think Roger Deacons is obviously, you know, the person that you come out of the theater talking about, but I think that people who are afraid that this is going to be more style than substance are going to be uh, pleasantly surprised. I think, because I think there there's, plenty of substance there. There's, there's enough substance for the kind of movie that it is uh, to make this into something truly special and very deserving of its best picture nomination. And um, one of the best war movies I've seen in a long time, Scott.
0: Yeah. I, I, to say the, to say the least, like I had the same fears that, that you did going in that I would really enjoy the experience of seeing the film for its production, you know, that full production uh, design. So, you know, talking sound cinematography, um, visuals, every, everything, but like Dunkirk, felt that I would forget what the story really was a couple of days later, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since since I saw it, I and mean, I saw it again today. So, I mean, we're recording on Monday night here. I saw it on Thursday night, and I saw it again earlier today, and I just haven't stopped thinking about it. I want, I'm going to go see it again this weekend with someone who i have convinced to go watch it. Like, I'm just so excited to see this movie again, and, I, and the visuals are of course the like the main talking point the fact that this you have this one long shot like you've described yes there are points where it is edited and it's not one fluid take of course uh e- even in the you know i guess it, it to spoil things there's two shots in the film is really it's 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 cut to look like two two shots total just like birdman actually too for the comparison birdman mm-hmm. was was shot to look like two two shots as well and you know there there are moments where where it edits and and one of the things that I've been thinking more is about the pa- like how this movie treats the passage of time which we can talk about a little bit later but to me calling it overwhelming is an understatement it was one of those things where like I knew I was going to be awed by the experience of seeing the film regardless of what the film actually was I was going to be wowed by it and not only did it somehow exceed those expectations but the parts that I wasn't expecting also it it, it far exceeded those as well I think that. George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman are way underrated for their performances in this film. I think that you know if they got an Oscar nominations or any awards consideration whatsoever outside of the BAFTAs, I think that that would have been well-deserved. I think both performances are incredibly strong. I think that yes. I mean, earlier today, the score did get nominated and has been nominated other awards as well, but no one's talking about this as an amazing score. And like, guys, I think this might be my favorite score of the year. I think this is an incredible score there. It's we often talk about the like the greatest scores are going to be the ones where they feel like a, another character in the film, and I'm not sure that that quite accurately describes the way this score works. But the score is—it it seems like it'd be impossible to watch the movie without the score to me. Like I just so associate certain musical notes uh, with certain parts of the film now that it and, it and it of course amplifies everything that's going on in such a perfect way, just like the cinematography does. I mean, beyond just the experience you get watching it, the fact that you talk about the building of the tension the way with the cinematography. I think the score builds that as well appropriately. And then it also goes quiet in certain moments as well, uh, which is appropriate and perfect. And and just overall being blown away by those parts, being blown away by the performances, which no one was really talking about that much, and also blown away by the story. You, you talk about it not being very complex, uh, and that's accurate. I mean, I was, I was writing the kind of the the script for today's episode, and Honestly, it might be the easiest one I've written this year. It's such a straightforward story, but it's told it in such a way that it it is, it ends up being far more than the sum of its parts. I think that not just the story itself, but the events that happen along the way. And, and the way that I used to describe it in my letterbox review, which I can go into a little bit more detail later, is just how tender I thought the story ended up being for a war film just really took me, took me by surprise. I mean, there's Yes, there are some very loud moments. I think that one of the best parts about this film is the sound design beyond just the score, but there are also some incredibly quiet moments as well, some, you know, pin drop moments in the film that uh, accentuate and, and complement everything else going on. And, and that's why, you know, this film you know, immediately rocketed up my list of best movies of the year. And, you know, not to hide date ball or anything, I think 1917 might be one of those scenarios where I think this might be my favorite film of the year. I don't necessarily think it's the best film of the year. I think that Parasite probably is still a better film, in my opinion. But I just – I love this movie so much already. And, you know, give it a few more watches. Give it a little bit of time. It might be my favorite war movie of all time.
1: Yeah, no, it is an overwhelming experience in a way, just – C- certain shots, and then just the, the the way that the scenes are staged, right? It yeah. just feels like Roger Deacons and Mendez and everybody are just consistently trying to top each other, which each yeah. with each sequence. And I mean, they kind of do.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, and we can talk about it. I mean, we're we are going to talk about this later, of course, it's, it's Oscar candidacy and stuff. But la- last Sunday night, you know, around, you know, Seven or eight days ago, I was like, wow, I'm really surprised that Sam Mendes is winning Best Director over the other people involved in involved. I'm shocked it won Best Picture in some ways. And now I'm like, would I still have been surprised if I'd seen this movie before Last Sunday Night? Yeah, I think I still would have been surprised that it won those awards. But it's more than deserving of those awards. And I, I yeah. hope that it does uh, repeat itself at the Oscars when we get around to that. But we will get to that. And Scott, we've, we've kind of already started talking about it. But why not give the goat his due some more Scott, I think that the answer to this question is is almost rhetorical, but does the one-shot slash two-shot take of this film, does it work for you?
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Um, again, I think it, it's, it's super immersive. It builds suspense because you can't always see what's going on. I love the way that... Um, Again, you are positioned with the characters the whole time. And so to talk about that that Hitchcockian scene that happens, right, with the plane. Um,
0: Which is in the trailer, so not a spoiler.
1: Yeah, but. no. I mean, yeah, it's not really a spoiler anyway. But, um, there, you know, there's this plane. There's a dogfight going on in, you know, what appears to be very far away, right? Like, the way that they play with perspective in this scene, yeah. I think, is really interesting. Uh, because, you know, there are two main characters, Schofield and um, Blake. Blake are in this like a rundown town that has been sort of abandoned. They see this dogfight going on. And then all of a sudden one of the planes starts going down and like, you realize, Oh, well, this is actually a lot closer than it looks like. Um, and, you know, comes to the point where they are literally have to run away to escape the plane as it crash lands. Um, and that I think is, you know, a, a brilliant example right there of, of how the visual technique works because again, you're, you're it's playing with with what you see. It's putting you in the character's shoes, um, and I mean, you're just as surprised as the characters are when um, you know the the plane comes crashing towards them. Yeah, just the just the way that certain scenes are staged just make you think. How did they pull this off? Right, like the the scene that you see in the trailers a lot of, of George McKay running across the field. Uh, and there's been a video going around on Twitter actually of them of the filming of the scene, which is really like sort of mesmerizing to watch but um the fact you have him running through this like literal battle that's going on and knocking into people and like I I don't know that I can put my finger on like one thing but um the one-shot technique just adds to your experience of that and I think it makes you like feel the journey that you're going on with these characters which I think is important to um what you know that you connecting emotionally to the story and to you know what you're talking about with time being an element and all of that. I think the fact that um, you know you, you don't feel like you are there is this artifice between you and what's going on in the screen. Like you are you are following the character for the entire movie and um, the movie is never stepping away and saying, "Hey, look, this is this is a movie." Um, and so I think you really feel the toll that the journey is taking on the characters because it's kind of taking the same on you, right? You're like, it's, it is like almost anxiety inducing at certain points when you're, you you, you want the camera to cut away. Right. Like, and um, you're like, come on, just show me what, just show me the greater um, scope of what's going on here. And, you know, towards the end, right. When he has to run past this entire like line of soldiers that are in, through the trench like you it 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 is like the i'm talking about them trying to top each other and it's like he's just run across the field and then like you see that he has to go through this entire line like it's revealed right that's the thing about this technique is that a lot of stuff just gets revealed um when you're you're not expecting it or whatever and you see that he has to go through all of these people and it's just like oh my gosh um so yeah i don't know that i did did a great job of summing up why it works but yeah um it really, really works. I, I don't know how they pulled it off again. And um, it's it's just astonishing to watch. Um, but it's not distracting to watch. Like I think it really does add to the experience of the movie. It's It doesn't feel like Sam Mendes is just saying, let's do this just to see if we can do it. Like Let's just make a war movie in one shot to see if we can do it. I think it like fully adds to the experience and helps you appreciate the substance of the movie as well.
0: Yeah, that's, that's the thing, because whenever I – and I thought – I did think about this with Birdman as well, and, and I think that this movie does it in a way that's far more additive to the experience than the way Birdman does I think that it's definitely additive to Birdman, but the benefit that I, I feel like I got out of watching this movie shot in the way that it's shot and edited in the way that it's edited to look like two fluid takes, I think that it is – it, it really – I can't imagine watching the movie with the same experience in any other way. There are elements of Birdman where I feel like, okay, I could have gotten a very close to similar experience with a different cinematography um perspective and way that it's shot to some extent. But with with this movie, especially, like not one, not only do I find it far more impressive what they're able to do, uh, given the fact that this is an action movie. Like you said, Birdman is is kind of a a more straight-laced drama, so to speak, but an action movie in the visual effects and stunts that are required, the it, the one shot is not only impressive and breathtaking, it's absorbing in the exact way that you describe. I think that the you talk about adding tension by not ever really cutting away from the perspective or at least the angle of of the you know of George McKay and Jean Dean Charles Chapman's character, Schofield and Blake. Yeah, now sometimes the camera's positioned behind them, which might be some of what people are saying around like the video gamey feel. There are a couple shots that feel a little bit like a video game. I didn't have any problem with that. And I don't really Mm -hmm. know like why that's even a complaint to be honest, but then there are shots, you know, from the side. And then most commonly, I think from, from the front when you're just looking directly at them. And they're of course, looking beyond the camera and adding the tension in that way. I think it just does it so well. And, I can't imagine. Like I kind of already alluded to this, but I just don't know what this movie would be like if it's not shot from that perspective. Like, yes, the story would still be compelling and tender, and all those things that I described, which we can talk about here in a second. But the film would just be totally different. It'd just be a totally different experience. I don't think that'd have the same tension. I don't think that I would have felt the same way while watching. And of course, we'll never know that. But I just don't feel like this movie is nineteen seventeen without without that particular yeah. perspective. And you don't feel
1: connected to the journey. I mean this is kind of what I was saying, but like right, like because cause the whole thing is about them going from this one place to another. And like in a movie where you're not doing the one-shot technique, you could skip ahead a lot in the journey. And like, you know, it can be it could be like, okay, they're gonna walk across this wasteland now and we're gonna cut and they're at the end of the wasteland. There you go. Yeah. No, you're with them every single step of the way. Like every single step of this journey. The audience is part of it. And that's why I think um, you really, it, it really gets to you in the end. And it, you know, stepping away from the one shot technique, I think just some of the individual shots like I was talking about are just yeah mind boggling. There's there's one shot and without spoiling anything but a, a certain character comes up the stairs at nighttime and you look out over these ruins and there's flares, this orange hue, like lighting up the dark sky. and. Um, I, again, these ruins sort of in the foreground of the image, um, and it's absolutely amazing. Like I, the shadows it casts are just like I just
0: don't even know how they lit it. To me, the shadows it, it
1: casts throughout, yeah, but like yeah. when when I saw the shot, like before I even knew what I was looking at fully, I was just like, my God. Like I literally whispered that to myself because I was like, this is unbelievable. Um, and then just some shots of like, uh, of one particular character standing in the foreground with like burning stuff, burning in the background. yeah. Like as he just moves through these ruins again, this whole sequence that takes place in these ruins with flares and everything is, is unbelievable, unbelievable um and then you know so, some of the other moments that I've talked about I think like this is another one for your Oscar ballot where pick it up check Roger Deakins is one of your first or second picks because there's no way he's not going to win the Oscar um and I you know he, he's almost showing off at this point I think that like it, it would have been funny honestly if he had not gotten the oscar for blade runner 2049 right because i think there's just no way that the academy could have ignored him for this like if he had not gotten that oscar for for blade runner i think we would have been looking at this movie like okay roger we get it you want the oscar like yeah. calm down but he got it so but he's and he's going to get it again this year so
0: yeah i mean it's just amazing if you, if you watch the film you might think emil lebetsky shot it just because he's done so many mm-hmm. films not all of course like like he did with birdman not all look to look like one shot but a lot of long shot techniques and he really was the person that i don't know if pioneer is the right word but is known for doing that frequently in his films and And
1: actually the talking of of blade runner the some of those shots during like the flare sequences and stuff actually kind of reminded me of the look of blade runner 2049 in a way with like the dark oranges and blacks and everything going on like i actually did think about that as i was watching it like oh he might he's kind of borrowing a little bit from that but not in that way
0: yeah, this is one of those films, I guess, to kind of put a, a final note here on the cinematography. I think this is one of those films where, for me, you know, as soon as a collector's edition of this comes down, to, if, you know, if Criterion ever got a hold of this, like, I would immediately buy it. I yeah. cannot wait. You mean you mentioned the video on Twitter of them shooting, you know, one scene in particular that you were describing, running across a field, and how they shot that. I mean, I've devoured as much as I can find out there, uh, stuff like that. and And I just hope that in the course of the production of this, and I... And I couldn't imagine why they wouldn't do this, that they have more film of them filming the movie. Yeah. Uh, cause some, some of these shots in particular, and honestly, I don't even think that's one of the crazy ones. I mean, I mean, I guess we don't know cause we don't know what it looked like, but some of the other ones that I have pictured and especially on my second watch was thinking more about, okay, exactly how could they have shot this scene? I mean, some of them seem absolutely outrageous to me, uh, how, how they got shot. Even I mean, one in, happens earlier on in the film where again, I mean, there must've been a cut somehow to do this, but when they when they initially get into the trench, the German trench, and go inside the excavation or cave or dugout, however you want to describe it, and then you know that uh, a certain event happens at that point. I'm just like, I don't know how they shot this. Like, I don't know how they mm-hmm. they they did this in in one take. Which makes me think there must be a cut in there somewhere. Sure, but yeah. but still, it's just like man, in, incredible stuff. And uh, yeah. I just can't wait to to get a lot of those kind of featurettes behind the scenes, so to speak. Uh, it is one of those movies that's the that's going to really grab my attention like that. And uh, I just hope they have a lot of footage.
1: Yeah, no, as far as that running scene goes with respect to every Tom Cruise movie of all
0: time, this might be the best running scene ever in a movie. I hope George McKay becomes known for running in movies. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Moving on to another aspect of the design. And it's so unusual for us to be talking about uh, production and craft elements before we talk about any performances in the story. But I, I think that the next thing to talk about is Thomas Newman's score. You talk about Roger Deacon's, you know, on his 14th attempt at the Blade Runner, finally getting an Oscar. Uh, this is what is Roger Deacons' 15th nomination. It also happens to be Thomas Newman's 15th nomination. And unlike Roger Deacons, Thomas Newman hasn't won an Oscar yet. He hasn't won. Wow. That's he rough. hasn't won. This is his 15th nomination. He hasn't won. I don't and know. I, I don't, don't know if this year is going to be his year, but Scott, I can't help but think uh, that it should be because this the score is amazing. It's my favorite score of the year so far, hands down uh, for me. And honestly, I mean, just one of the best scores that I've, that I've heard in a while. It just, not only is it a fantastic, you know, sweeping orchestral score, uh, it hits all the quiet notes as well. Like I was saying, it hits the quiet notes, it hits the loud notes, and it does everything so perfectly in step with the film, in step with the camera, in step with the performances. It's complimentary to everything around it. And it's just so integral to my, again, my experience and enjoyment of the film. Scott, leaving the question of the Oscar aside, what did you think of the score?
1: Yeah, it's great. I'm, um, you know, it it would compete up there with me for the Little Women score and for Uncut Gems. Honestly, those are those are kind of my favorite scores this year. But yeah. um, this one absolutely belongs up there and belongs in the category um, where I'm glad it ended up. I think you're right. Like there are in certain moments, particularly early on, there's this like a eth- ethereal, eerie feel to it, right? Which is right because a lot of the early scenes is them going through these really like bombed out locations like wastelands and caves and they're, you know, crawling across dead bodies and all of this stuff. Like, yeah, like that's the horrors of war horror right there. And I think that um, it is almost like a horror movie type eerie score at, at those moments, which is particular, it is right. Um, but then it does develop over the course of the movie, like talking about again, that, that sequence with, uh, George Mackay out in the ruins. Um, it gets like super triumphant all of a sudden, like I wasn't like expecting it, but all of a sudden it's like, you know, it it really explodes and becomes like, uh, you know, very inspirational. Like you, you know, fully reflecting the sort of, um, it's an adventure movie, badassery is going on on screen with George Mackay's character, you know, running from the Germans at, at this point, you know, and, um, doing whatever it takes to complete his mission. I think, yeah, right. It, this is where the real adventurous uh, part of the score comes in. And so I think it's perfectly um, tailored to that. And yeah, I think Thomas Newman crushes it here. It's a shame that he probably isn't going to get the Oscar, um, but he'll get one eventually. Surely.
0: Yeah, surely. I mean, he's not even that old. I don't, I don't know how old he is, but he's got plenty of, he's probably got another 15 nominations. In the Middle East. Yeah. Hey, John uh,
1: Williams has 52. So,
0: yeah I mean he's a scrub though so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. kidding John Williams nominated again this year though so yeah, good for him second, I believe. yeah that's what, casual I mean how uh, the average is like three a year I don't know I'm kidding but <laughs> it's just like crazy it, but the score is just wonderful uh, you know you talk you talk about hitting kind of the horror elements of, of the movie which of course not not traditional horror this movie isn't a horror sure. movie by by any stretch of the imagination but those moments that to reference me that you mentioned earlier and that I definitely want to talk about later the fact that this movie or the elements of this movie that might be considered and that I would consider anti-war. I think that in those moments, the score again, treats that the way it should and accentuates that and amplifies that for me, I I guess for some people haven't felt that way, but again, I don't know if I a hundred percent understand where they're coming from with that. But to me, I might mention this later. I'm still deciding what my favorite moment of the film is, but honestly, one of the ones early on, just when they go out of the tent after they've received their mission uh, and the score just kicks in for the first time. I mean, yeah, it's kind of been floating in the background. You, you mentioned kind of ethereal-like, but all of a sudden it, you get that first glimpse of what will be like kind of the adventure theme of the film. And it's when they walk out, Gene Charles Chapman says, no, we don't need to talk about it, and just like turns around and starts walking, you know, along the trench line. The score kicks in. And you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is going to be good. And for me, that, that kind of just it sets the tone for the entire film about how the score is going to complement everything. And I don't know if I have much more to say beyond that, because it, it's amazing. I, you know, you, you've mentioned Alexander Desplat and, oh man, is it Daniel Lopatine for Uncut Gems? Uncut Gems yeah. yeah, I think those are also absolutely two, two of the best scores of the year. For me, I just didn't have this as good as they were. And as much as I appreciate the time, I just didn't feel like as connected to those scores during the film or in the same way that I did with this one. Because again, this one just seemed to meld perfectly for me. Moving on from that Scott might as well go ahead and and shift gears into maybe what might be more comfortable territory for a podcast listeners talking about the cast there is a you know a pretty wide ranging and also fairly famous supporting cast to go along with the two central leads here I mean you have people like Benedict Cumberbatch you have Andrew Scott you have uh Mark Strong who's probably uh, the one who gets the most prominent role in the supporting cast if there even is a prominent role in the supporting cast but the two leads here are are what rely on the movie there's dean charles chapman who plays blake and schofield is played by george mckay mckay i'm actually not sure how to pronounce it um if it's mckay i've been pronouncing it so far uh so wrong on the podcast so far but those are the two leads and in terms of the emotional connection that you talk about is you can be absorbed you can be engaged by everything that we talked about in terms of the craft and the production but to be invested in the film I think you have to have these good central performances, Scott. And, you know, I've already mentioned that they do really work for me. I think that they are super underrated performances this year when it comes to awards consideration. And it sounds like you feel the same.
1: Yeah, I do. Uh, particularly in the case of George Mackay, I do like his performance the most, I think, but I think they're both really good. I think that they set up the character again. Like I love movies that set up the story efficiently. And I think that this movie sets up the story efficiently. Right. Like, as like we said, in that very short sequence with Colin first, it's go to the place, find the guy, tell him the thing. That's it. Um, But it also sets up the characters very efficiently. Like you see them at the beginning and they're, you know, they're wisecracking a little bit. They're um, trying to, you know, get through what is obviously a really rough life and war and they're talking about their families and stuff like that. But once this mission starts, you see sort of their priorities come out. And, um, Blake, obviously his brother is the one who is, is out there and and that they're trying to reach. Um, and, uh, he all of a sudden, as soon as, you know, he hears about his brother, he locks in and and nothing is going to stop him from committing or from completing his mission. Um, and, you know, you see that a lot of the acting here is, is, you know, on their faces, right? Because, There's not a lot of dialogue at certain points. There's just a lot of action happening. And so they have to wear a lot on their faces. And I think they're both successful. Uh, And then as for the George Mackay character, right? Like he is along for the ride. He is just kind of accompanying his friend because he needs, you know, backup, so to speak. He doesn't have the emotional connection, at least at first, to their mission uh, because it's not his brother out there. And, and you know, there's some tension between the the characters based on this fact, right? Like that that um, George McKay kind of resents the fact that um, he's being dragged out here for this mission. That he is real is a very difficult mission, and that he doesn't really have much of a stake in. Um, but then we see, you know, as certain events happen in the movie, um, he he changes his his t- tenor, and you know, starts is as committed, if not more committed, to the mission than uh, than Blake is at the start of. The film, and um, so I love the the arc of the character. Like he he undergoes a legitimate arc in the movie, yeah. And maybe maybe it's subtle, right? Maybe there's not a whole lot of dialogue and and plot going on to tell you that that's what's happening. But there doesn't need to be. I think that you know the the, the storytelling and the visuals and everything is good enough here to where um, that is conveyed even when nothing is being said, even when there's no p- new plot details that are being uncovered. Um, so. Yeah, no, I I really like both of the performances here. I think they suit the movie well. And I think talking about the supporting cast, if I had to point to one person, I don't think you mentioned him, but Richard Madden um, pops up at the very end of the movie and actually has a very he's you know, again, he's in maybe two minutes. But I I found his role very affecting um, and a, a real sort of emotional climax to the movie that I think. He gives it his all in those two minutes, so I was I really enjoyed what he did. What he did um, in the climax of the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned a few people in the supporting cast. You mentioned Colin Firth and Richard Madden as well, and that, that just goes to show mm-hmm. the strength of the supporting cast. Even though, I mean, probably the average length of time on screen for the supporting cast is probably about two minutes uh, per per character. So there's really not a lot of time to leave an impact. But I think a good number of them do. But again, that being said, totally agree. It all relies on those central performances. I think Dean Charles Chapman is a, I think that I guess the, the dynamic that those two have, I think it it sets up the movie and these characters really well. Cause you learn a lot about the other person, you know, a a lot about each of them from the other person and and how they, and how they compare, they essentially bounce off of each other at first. I mean, they're clearly, you know, they're clearly friends. They're clearly close in in their particular, you know, regiment battalion, whatever it might be. Uh, But at the end of the day, you're talking about the opening shot of the film you know george MacKay is is being taken here uh, along for the ride just because he was kind of the guy just lying next to to dean charles chapman's character and, and a lot of the what you know you talk about like the arc that, that you know one or both characters kind of go through over the course of the over you know over the arc of the film i think a lot of that relies on the other person being there not even necessarily to grow and learn from each other but to kind of allow a to be a sounding board almost to unveil some of those, you know, contextual, uh, clues. When I mean, you talk about, you know, the family as, as a part of that. I mean, you learn so much, I think about both of these characters, families and backgrounds, just by the fact that there is another person there that, that yes, some of it might still get, you know, released and revealed, you know, drip drip, like almost, or through different parts of the film. But it really is because the other person is there and not because of ne- – I mean, it's some dialogue, but not necessarily because of any dialogue that's getting released. And so I think the setup for the film there works really well because not only is it efficient in setting up the plot, again, a very a relatively straightforward plot, all things considered, but the character development as well. It, it just sets it up so well. And, and again, just one of the things that really surprised me about this is, is not, just, not only the characters and, and the experience that you go through. Again, the cinematography and the design of the story really – adding to that because you're having to go through everything that these characters are going through, but also the performances themselves. And I'd agree. George, George Mackay is, is the standout here, but very, very strong cast all around a contender or what could be a contender for best ensemble cast. Again, it's not that kind of film. It's not that kind of film if we're being honest, but to me again, all around performance wise, really strong.
1: Yeah. And to piggyback on kind of what you're saying, I think the relationship between the two guys starts out as, they're friends, but like, these are two guys who are friends by virtue of being in the war together, right? Like yeah. they didn't know each other beforehand or anything like that. They're just, they're friends by virtue of being in the same plight, the same situation together. Um, but I think as the movie goes on, as they experience certain things, right? Like we see the relationship change from, um, you know, we aren't just two guys who who met in the war, but the experiences that we've gone through together have really brought us closer together. And, and you know, we have a deeper relationship than maybe either of them understand at the start of the movie. And so I really like that uh, transformation that happens as well.
0: Yeah. And going back to something that I'd said sort of at the beginning, and that is where a lot of the tenderness comes in is these moments mm-hmm. between these, these two characters and developing and, and all, I mean, also, to some extent, the supporting cast as well, as they, you know, come in and out of out of relevancy in the film. And, uh, it's just everything of everything about the these this cast and these characters just really worked for me. all right. kind of final thing before I ask kind of a higher or broader question about the film. and that's the story. You know, the tagline for this film, I think is time is the enemy. and in in you know, if there is such a thing as an antagonist for this type of film, I, I think you have to say that it is time. Yes, of course, you're fighting the Germans. It's the nature of of being a World War one film from you know, the, the English perspective, but it's got, does the setup of this film not, and I don't mean, you know, take this message, deliver it here, prevent this thing from happening, uh, set up as work, but it uh, does the film set up as time as the enemy. Is that something that works? Is it something that drives the plot forward in a way that is compelling, is engaging? You know, I've seen a couple of critiques of this film being kind of, you know, tiresome or boring or, or just some ways just very exhausting, which I can understand that. I mean, it can be a very exhausting movie, but, I think it also gets at this part where the story just isn't, isn't that compelling for some people. How is it for you?
1: No, it works for me. And, like, yeah, I agree. But I think some of that being exhausting is by design, right? Because the journey yeah. is exhausting for these characters, absolutely, you know, 10, 15 times more than it is for, for us. Um, and, so, I mean, yeah, the time is the end of work for me. I will say, like, if I had to critique one scene, if, if there's I had to critique one thing about the movie, there is one scene that I felt a little weird about involving one character and this mother and child that uh, this character encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the moment, right, where, where there is such a sense of urgency, maybe, throughout the rest of the movie. And you really do, again, you feel every step of this journey and every minute of this journey, because you are with them for every minute of this journey. Mm-hmm. And this scene happens and it, it feels a little convenient, first of all. And I understand like what it means in the course of the the film. Like I wouldn't take the scene out of the movie, but I think it does maybe hurt the time element a little bit of, look, you need to be, you know, you need to get out there. You need to get on with it. You don't have much time. Like, uh, and it just feels like all of a sudden there's this like, Seven-minute scene that takes place in a vacuum, um, where he's kind of like, and and ultimately, right, like that is what happens at the end of the scene, right? Is he he realizes, oh, I got to go, um, and and pieces out. But at the same time, I don't know. I think it does. Maybe if we're talking about that concept of time as the enemy, I think that's the only moment where it feels like the momentum really stops all of a sudden. So yeah, but other than that, I I think it works. I think it adds a lot of suspense because. Like, again, that's the mission. He's got to make it in time. And if he doesn't make it in time, really bad things are going to happen. A lot of people are going to die. Um, and that's compelling enough as a setup all all on its own. And as long as we care about the characters, which we do, I think we're, you know, we're along for the ride. And so it works for me.
0: Yeah. Talking about that scene in particular, I definitely get the, I guess, the point about, it being it feeling like it's taking place in a vacuum. It kind of takes you out of the action, you know, at that, cause at that point, the movie had gotten to be almost a complete uh, action or adventure style movie for me though. That scene also really works. I think that uh, as much as it does seem like all of a sudden he's managed to forget about the urgency of his mission. I think that also the context of that scene of what happens before it. And, you know, not just, not just immediately before it, but like, we're talking about like, you know, five, 10 minutes of, of, space leading up to that film. I'm just trying not to give anything away, uh, going on right there. But I think that it all also makes sense because I think that this is a period of the film, of, you know, a 10, 15 minute, 20 minute time slot, whatever it might be in the film, where this character has also forgotten about the urgency of, of the mission being, you know, kind of been taken out of, all right, I need to get from point A to point B for this reason where it's like, you know, right now I'm just kind of, you know, pinballing around here, going from you know, one thing to the next and kind of reacting to everything that's happening around it and getting, you know, losing sense of that time and getting lost and swept away by the sheer kind of adventure and war element of it and, and losing track of that mission. And I think that that tender moment, again, going back to that kind of theme of, of tenderness throughout the film that, that this character shares with, that it just has in the scene, I think that it's something that allows everything to slow down and lose the freneticism almost, uh, or freneticism is not even a word, frenzy of, you know, of it all, right, yeah, yeah fr- frenzy of it and then have that reset when, you know, you hear something in the, you know, you you he has this realization, like, crap, you know, I do have to go. And for me, for that reason, especially on a second watch, I think it really worked. I think that it also helps a little bit with the pacing of the film. Again, it might be convenient, but it helps with the pacing. And I think, again, I can understand and believe that that actually you know, would have happened and would have been something uh, that made sense in, in the arc of things. But again, I, I think I could understand, uh, some people not necessarily taking exception, but kind of scratching their head a little bit about that as well. But another element of just to bring in a new element of conversation, because again, I, I I agree with pretty much everything else that you said. Another thing to bring in here is that I really tried to understand again, passage of time, even within the one shot, right? Cause I think that it's fair to say that there is time, like it's not, you know, live time happening in front of your eyes here, right? Like, you know, the first hour, mm-hmm. 15 minutes of the film is not an hour and 15 minutes in, you know, the setting of 1917, mm-hmm. I don't think. And I was really in a second viewing trying to understand that component of it, how it worked into the story. The best thing that I can come up with is basically whenever there was a, a spinning shot of the camera, that's actually signifies time passing. And one of the thing reasons that I, I've been thinking this is that in some of these shots in particular that involve kind of just it's not a 360 spin. I mean, maybe it is a 360 spin. I don't know. But this kind of very, like, more than just an angle turn of the camera, it feels like their setting is almost changing a little bit. Like, that the time has passed. That, you know, there's one scene in particular again. I mean, we're 40, almost 42, 43 minutes into recording. We can probably talk about spoilers here. So, just a fair warning if, if somehow you're still listening and you haven't seen this, I would say I would suggest you to fast forward here because I'm going to talk about a little bit of spoiler. But after kind of the first climactic event of the film, when you know Blake you know is killed in, at this kind of like farmhouse setting, you don't hear any of the trucks in the background pulling up when the other English soldiers come in. You don't hear any of that happening. Uh, but in that scene, right before that, you do get this kind of spinning take of George MacKay's character here, kind of just sitting with the body of Dean Charles Chapman. And, and I can't help but think that 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 some passage of time has happened there uh, because the other than that, I mean, it's either that or it was, a, it was a screw up on the part of, of the sound design of not getting the trucks in the background. And the reason that as I thought more about this and as time went on in the movie, as, as it kept going, I think this happens again, right after they drop uh, George, George Mackay off in, from the trucks uh, at near outside a and I think that is something that happens is that the camera spins to reveal sort of this river here. It's not – again, it's not just angle turn. It's more significant than that. And all of a sudden, all these trucks, like the noise of them is gone. Their, their presence is gone. Yeah. And so I can't help but think, again, time has passed there. And I don't know if this is something that resonates with you. It's probably not even a relevant discussion to have, but it's one of the things that I was thinking about as I was watching it a second time.
1: No, I mean I didn't pick up on that obviously, but I think that that makes sense. I I'm, And I mean like with the trucks and everything, it doesn't seem like they go a very – long distance. So I think it it makes sense that, you know, there, that we are supposed to presume that there is some sort of passage of time here that maybe he was in the truck for a longer time than is actually depicted in the, in the movie. But I also think, you know, we talked about how there is one cut that you notice and on purpose that you notice it, I think they make a good use of that moment as well too. And that helps with the passage of time as well. Right. Because Mm -hmm. when, when uh what Schofield gets shot at, by the the guy in the, the tower and falls yeah. down the stairs, right? Like it's still like light outside yeah. when he falls down the stairs and when he wakes up, it's pitch black. So, yeah. I mean, that's one way to solve the passage of time, right? Is to actually literally cut at one point. Yeah. Uh, but I think to your point again, like, yes, there is more time passing than what is happening in real time, but it still feels like you're not missing any part of the journey, right? Totally. It feels like you're there with them every single step of the way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and and I wasn't kind of laying out that argument. I, if anything, it was kind of the opposite of a complaint. I think it was it's a really yeah. it's really cleverly done because it happens so seamlessly. It doesn't take you out and make you, and, and it also doesn't elongate kind of the runtime, which is something a lot of movies have had a problem with this year. Uh, and so it, it's something that really worked for me. I, just the story overall, again, I think that with the cast of characters that that you know Sam Mendes and I forget the other the other co writer for this film, but uh, that they're able to to create. Here, I think that it engages you in the story and it gets you invested in the completion of this mission. And then, you know, the way the story goes about unfolding and developing and telling the story of these characters—again, it just all works for me. And I—I uh, I don't really know if i change too much, if anything at all. And you know, some of the things that I was thinking about over the course of the film, when I was watching it both the first and the second time, the things that were coming to mind—I was like, oh well, I don't know. I think I might have done this differently. I mean, there's just such small things that yeah, uh, that are hardly even worth mentioning. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, Scott. I mean, one kind of final thing, you know, as promised, that I want to circle back around to before we do into our wrap up phase, and that is its awards chances. I talked about, you know, it did win two Golden Globes last weekend, uh, one being, of course, best director for Sam Mendes, and then best motion picture drama for 1917 as a whole. Scott, do you view its chances? You know, taking the fact that you know it's going from kind of a surprise winner at the Golden Globes winning best motion picture drama and, and in some senses becoming the favorite for best picture in some ways. Obviously there's other, other contenders there as, as well. Uh, but how do you translate that to, you know, the Oscars now with 10 nominations, obviously a lot of those in the production and the craft, uh, categories and only a couple of them in sort of the more mainstream quote unquote, uh, categories. But do you think that this is one of the top contenders for an Oscar in, in, in a month's time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, the golden globes definitely changed the way we thought about certain things. And we talked about this when recapping the golden globes, but I think that uh, this movie is firmly ahead of the Irishman. Now Um, when, you know, a few weeks ago, people might've said the Irishman is the front runner for best picture. I don't think it's in the race now. I think that, um, you know, that, once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably still the favorite, but I think that 1917 is up in that upper tier now, along with Parasite and Joker, perhaps, for the Best Picture Oscar, um, and has has a very good chance. I think that the way I look at it right now, right, because you have Mendez nominated for Best Director, you have it nominated for Best Picture, I think it's either going to win both or neither, um, mm. because I don't think that you can give that movie Best Picture well, you certainly can't give it best picture and not give it best director, in my opinion.
0: Um, They'll find and, a way, don't worry. Yeah,
1: I know. But I, I and if they give it best director, I think it would be weird if they didn't give it best picture because yeah, it's, it's gonna all win about cinematography. The it's all about I mean, the directing. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and so I think it's either gonna win both or neither. Like now we'll talk about this, but like I could see I could see the directing and best picture category going in two different directions. But if Mendez is winning best director, then I fully expect that 1917 is going to win best picture. Um, and I, I so. think that there's a legitimate chance of, of both of those. I think uh, people are just now seeing this movie, right? Like, which may be, may actually be a good thing for the Oscar campaign specifically. Um Totally. And that it might be the freshest in voters' minds when they when they cast their ballots. Um, and yeah, there's some people on film, Twitter, and stuff who aren't as big of a fan as, of this movie. But like that doesn't matter. Like Green Book won last year, so um, yeah, no, I think it has a really good shot.
0: Yeah, I think that to your point exactly. Like not not only is it not just now coming up, people are just now seeing it, and that helping its Oscar campaign is that you know it. It became the top grossing movie. Last, I mean, it was the top grossing movie this past weekend at the box office, and it wasn't even close. Like, Rise of Skywalker had kind of owned the box office since it came out four weekends ago now, which obviously, you know, Skywalker fourth weekend, you know, it's going to come down a little bit by then. But the fact that this movie did like 35 to 40 million, which I think doubled the predictions of it. I mean, absolutely. The Golden Globe certainly helped. You know, it has an A minus cinema score. Yes, it is a war. You know, it is a period war film, and those generally have an audience, right? That you know, people people go out to see war movies. But the fact that it's doing this well in January, on even on its open release, I mean, not only did Universal do a really good job with its you know initial release, its initial very narrow targeted release in LA and New York, and and building hype around it, it timed it perfectly. Uh, of course, they couldn't have known they were going to win a Golden glow or two Golden Globes, but it timed it perfectly with you know releasing it wide at exactly the right moment for its oscar campaign and I, and i agree i think that it is you know up there in that top tier do i i think that once upon a time in hollywood probably is the front runner if you had to pick one but i think 1917 is right behind it i think you know to your point exactly parasite and joker are up there as well i think marriage story may be fading a little bit again we'll talk about all this in just a second but i i'm a little bit surprised that i'm saying that about 1917 and i'd be absolutely thrilled if it a best picture.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it feels so satisfying is because, you know, you describe it as a period war drama, but that's kind of the disguise, right? Like we talk about the fact that this is like an action thriller almost. This is a, like low key, a genre movie descri- yeah. like disguised as an Oscar movie, right? And yeah. I, So I think that's what feels both satisfying and frustrating at the same time, right? Because it's mm-hmm. like, if Avengers Endgame wasn't a superhero movie, right? Like, and they they dressed it up as something else. It might yeah. have a chance, right? And you don't cha- you don't necessarily change anything else about the film uh, yeah. because I think quality wise, the films are are pretty close. Um, but it's just it's the way that the movie is presented that really matters the most to the Academy, I think. And so it's nice to see that a movie that is winning all of the technical categories, right? Which is where you usually expect your your genre films maybe to to clean up. Is also getting respect in screenplay, which, okay, like probably doesn't deserve the screenplay nomination, but directing and best picture and has a legitimate shot. Like, I think that would be sort of a coup, even if the Academy doesn't realize it, if, if uh, 1917 won best picture.
0: Yeah. I mean, fair enough, Scott. I don't know if I have any more to add than that, especially since we're probably about to spend 30, 45 minutes talking about the Oscars as soon as we get a break. So let's enter our wrap up phase. Uh, you can't pick the entire movie for your favorite moment, Scott. So you're going to have to be a little bit more narrow with yeah, you that. You pick the first half or the second half, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say you pick the first cut, or you pick the second cut. Yeah. <laughs> so Scott, which cut is going to be your favorite? Uh,
1: no, I mean, I guess after the cut, but it's the flare yeah. sequence, The se- this whole sequence in the ruins that I think I, I've been talking about a lot for a lot of reasons, right? That it looks amazing. The shots are incredible the shadows and the music really pick up in this particular moment. But it's also like the first time you get a real sense of like the violence of war, like there, there is some violence earlier on in the movie, but like it's one-on-one mainly. Um, And this is the moment where like multiple German soldiers are firing at George Mackay. Like he is, and they have very, very bad aim. It must be said, but uh well some of them are drunk it seems like yeah so. <laughs> yeah some of them are but um he you know you, you really get a sense of like oh this is the first time you'd like see the germans really in the movie and like in dunkirk you never see the germans that's one thing about dunkirk but um and so you you know you really get a sense of oh like this is this is what he's embroiled in right now um and so i like that aspect of it too it, it just it really picks up and um you know not the first part of the movie is bad by or boring by any stretch of the imagination but i think the combination of everything going on in this scene is is almost overwhelming
0: yeah i mean that is it, it is a remarkable moment for me and you know the the one that i'm going to go with it's so hard to pick but i'm going to go with that kind of final climactic set piece that you kind of already talked about a little bit earlier him you know finally reaching the second battalion, almost by sheer dumb luck, even reaching the second battalion, and then realizing he's reached the second, and he's like, "Oh crap!" And so he starts running through the t- trenches, you know, having to work his way around, trying to t- stop at every single commanding officer and be like, "All right, where's this person yeah. I need to talk to?" And it, it is very stress inducing. Be like, "Oh my gosh, is he going to get there?" And, and,
1: and then I was just going to say, and then the moment he gets there, right, and you wonder, are they even going to listen to him after all yeah. this? I, are they even going to like accept his message and?
0: Yeah, but I mean the, the moment that really strikes again it's from the trailer so it was a moment that we knew was coming but you know he he gets by this he stops by this I don't know if it was a major or who it was or sergeant whatever it was but he asks him you know where the colonel is he's like 300 yards further up the line. they're like that's three football fields I am not going to make it that far uh and decides to instead of going through the trenches just to run straight across the battlefield uh which is a psycho move and my favorite line of the film Lance Corporal, what do you think you're doing? Yeah. Uh, And then he just starts running. And it's just that, that, you know, what follows there for the, you know, the 30, 45 seconds, however long it is that he's running, maybe even longer than that. I'm not sure. I think it's, it's spectacular. You talked about how this is, this is the scene where they're showing, they have that kind of behind the scenes footage of how it's shot. And uh, I, it's just, it's a fantastic moment. Seeing the score swells in that moment as well. You really, really feel the epicness of what's happening Uh, beyond that and you know not only that but also one of the things that's not being talked about at all though I think it did get a nomination in this category is the visual effects of this one I think this is one of the scenes where you get a lot of the visual effects I think there are a bunch of scenes you know the first time I was watching I kind of walked out I was thinking how did this movie cost a hundred million dollars to make Um, and that's because you don't necessarily realize just how much visual effects is going on uh, in this film and I think on the second watch again it's one of those things that I started to notice and think about a little bit more going into it and it was one of these scenes where I'm like, you know, there's a lot of visual effects happening in the scene and it all looks and it all works. It all looks good. It all looks natural and it's done really well and that's why it's it's kind of the moment of the film for me.
1: Yeah. All
0: right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving 1917 are you giving it a 1917 out
1: of 10 <laughs> i'm giving them out like candy nowadays but you know i wouldn't change anything about this experience it's my number three of the year plugging it into the list uh it's yeah. there ahead of dark waters just behind midsummer it's an amazing film 10 out of 10
0: yeah Scott. no complaints from me you'll get the same score it's uh 10 out of 10 is it the Have first
1: I was about to say, is this our first Double Ten of the year?
0: Well, as, this, as I was going to say, I think it was just searching last year that got the Double Ten from us. And uh, so, we, you know, we really, we actually got to the end of the year, and we are talking before the podcast, like, all right, Scott, like, we got to give a Double Ten this year. We did it once 2018, we did it once 2019. Uh, no, just kidding. It is it is our first Double Ten of the year. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. I also would not change a single thing about it, and I really, I just, I didn't think I'd be saying this about a film like yeah. this, but I can't wait to keep revisiting.
1: revisiting. No, I agree. Going in, I was like, I don't have any more room for another like incredible masterpiece to have come out in 2019, but I had to make room.
0: Yeah. uh, 2019, maybe, maybe the best year in film that I've been alive. So there you have it.
1: Best year since 1939.
0: You heard it here first. 1939. Oh man. Like I said, I think this might be my favorite movie of the year. I got to sit on it a little bit more. Not that it really even matters at this point for any sort of podcast related thing, but probably is my favorite film of the year but I think Parasite maybe edges it out as best film of the year for me but a uh, conversation that we probably won't ever have on air unless it comes up at the like it at got Awards in a little bit anyway that should just about do it for our discussion of 1917 we'll of course be talking more about 1917 on the back half of the show but in a different context with the Oscar nominations uh, Scott I'll just ask that in our short break here you take a deep breath before we get there uh, and when we return we will be talking about the Academy Award nominations we'll be right back Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It Scott. Scott, as promised, we will be now going through the Academy Award nominations for this year that came out this morning. You've already taken to social media and given some of your thoughts. Uh, we'll allow you to reiterate those into a microphone uh, now, but I do want to start by just kind of going through the nominees for Best Picture and you know just talk about you know who are the front runners here, right? You know, we've kind of already again started to have this conversation in our review of 1917, but. The best picture nominees are as follows Ford V Ferrari, the Irishman, Jojo rabbit, Joker, little women, marriage story, 1917, once upon a time in Hollywood and parasite. So those are nine nominees last year was eight. So they bumped it back up to nine this year and just going by sheer number of nominations. I mean the the, somehow, and I don't know how but the year will forever be remembered as the year that Joker got the most Oscar nominations, uh, unbelievable to me, honestly. I just, I never thought that. I mean, I, I did think it was going to get a Best Picture nominee, but I never thought that it ended up with the most nominations with 11 right behind it, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, and The Irishman, all with 10 nominations. And then with six nominations, you know, Parasite, uh, Marriage Story, Little Women, Jojo Rabbit, Scott. How do you kind of view the contenders? best picture here i mean to me it does kind of feel like once upon a time in hollywood 1917 joker and parasite are kind of the top four right now but you know what kind of chances do the other you know netflix films here you know the irishman marriage story even little women right yes you know greta Gerwig. we'll get to that didn't get a best director nomination but it did still get six nominations do you view it as having a chance at all
1: no, um, I agree <laughs> cool. with you about the ones that I think do have a legitimate chance. I think if I had to point to a fifth one, Jojo Rabbit, I think you can't count it out, but um, yeah. uh, it has a green bookie vibe. That's what I will say of the nominees. But, I think yeah. Jojo Rabbit is the most green bookie, but definitely a better film than Green Book. Um, yeah, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I think it's between those four that we talked about there, um, 1917. Joker, like it does have the most nominations. I still think it's probably fourth out of four in that group. Um, I, I just don't think it has a chance for. So, so what I will say overall is that one thing we always talk about here is the fact that the actual ballot is a preference form. Right? It's not you pick your favorite movie. It is you rank, yeah. you know, one to nine um, yeah. where you would put all of these movies, and the, it's calculated based on that. I think that. Joker is a movie like that. Some people are going to have at the bottom. And I, I think that that is going to, I mean, like, yes, it's obviously popular with the Academy voters and everything, but it is more divisive than the other movies I think that are in there. Uh, And so I think it will be at the bottom in some of these on some ballots. And that's probably, I mean, that's definitely going to
0: hurt it. Um whereas like a 1917, a once upon a time in Hollywood, a Parasite, you know, maybe less so once upon a time in Hollywood, but especially 1970 and Parasite. I think those movies are gonna be maybe they're on no one's number one list. I mean, that would be unfathomable to me, but it's gonna be higher, to your point, uh, in in the preferential ranking, I would think.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what I was gonna say about Parasite, is that I think the reason you can't count Parasite out is because of the preference firm, right? Like maybe it's not gonna be number one on a lot of ballots, to your point, but is it really going to be like lower than four on a lot of people's balance? Like as long as they've seen the movie, everyone loves Parasite. Like that is the one thing that I think people seem to be agreed upon about this whole scenario, whether it's, you know, your film Twitter bros or whatever, or whether it's the people who like, you know, enjoy comic book movies most of the the time. I think they're all on the train that Parasite is a really great movie. And I just can't see anyone in the Academy who is going to be like, Oh, Parasite is my, number seven or number eight. Like, I just think that's, that's just not a stance that I'm seeing from anyone. And I mean, there will be people who put it towards the bottom, certainly, but I think the fact that most of its votes are going to be concentrated in the upper half um, bodes well for its chances. Um, I think you're right that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, maybe is, is, you know, is more divisive. But at the same time, it's a movie about Hollywood and these people yeah. voting are, are Hollywooders. So, yeah, it all depends um, on the
0: ending, I think. I don't, yeah, it's just in those 8,600, 8,500, whatever the number is, Academy voters, how many of them are turned off by the ending?
1: And it hasn't seemed to make a big difference so far, right? Like it won the Golden Globe for best comedy or musical, it won Best Picture last night at the Critics' Choice Awards. Um, and different voting uh, like, body, but yes. Yeah it's up for best ensemble at sag so i mean that will be yep. interesting to watch too i mean i think it has a good chance there but you know the ensemble can be different and stuff but
0: it can uh, be but it is the best picture equivalent
1: right uh yeah. and so i think that uh it's still the front runner right as far as the other movies like i think the irishman strangely enough i think it's out of the running like robert de niro didn't get a best director oscar uh, our Best Actor Oscar nomination. Um, Scorsese hasn't won anything. Steve Zalian has been getting beat by Tarantino in every and single, every sort of screenplay category. Yeah. Um, I think it's out of the running, strangely enough. I, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, except maybe it was just too long for people, which is... It is too long. Darn shame if, if that's how... Uh, if that's the reason that it's fallen. But uh, I think it
0: also, I mean, to be fair, I mean, just to talk about for a second, because I, I don't know how much more, would, I did want to talk about De Niro getting snubbed. But like, you know, I think that again, there is, I would say in the three and a half hours, I mean, the last half hour, 45 minutes, I mean, incredible, like absolutely incredible. I just think that some of that stuff for the first two hours and 45 minutes to three hours, I mean, just some of that stuff. It feels like a movie you've seen before, and that's not. There's nothing wrong with that. It still is a great film, 100. Like if you haven't seen The Irishman, go watch it. It's definitely worth it. But I think in a in a year of film that has been as good as it has, with original pieces like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like Parasite, like other things that you don't really feel like you've ever seen something like it before, even 1917 to an extent. Uh, again, a, more limited there, but to some extent, I think that. It, I can see why the Irishman has fallen a little bit against the crop that has gone up against him. You know, maybe last year, maybe that, you know, this is the front runner, right. For best picture in, in, in a year like last year. But this year, I think it just came up against a crop that I think was well tuned to kind of over, you know, cast a large, a longer shadow than what that movie was able to do.
1: I mean, like I've been saying, I think my real problem with the viewpoint on this movie is that I think people just aren't even giving it a chance because of how long yeah. it is. Um, maybe. And okay, if you it's one thing if you have a substantive you know reason why you think it's too long, certain certain moments where you think could be cut out., um, yeah. but if you're just saying this is a three and a half hour movie, I'm gonna, you know that's too long for me. like get a life. Um, yeah. and and so I think you know that that could be part of it. That could be part of why the Irishman has slipped. Marriage story, I mean, we've talked it. we talked about it on the Golden Globe episode. I don't know that I can really point to any reason. A really great reason why it has fallen um or you know why it's not really getting much love anywhere but i think that that trend's going to continue like i, I don't see e- even though maybe it's a little more suited for the oscars than for some of the other awards like i i, I don't think it's going to beat out some of these really um top contenders there i think its best chance is at a adapted screenplay oscar which yeah. is where uh noah baumbach is going to be I think the top two candidates, Noah Baumbach and his partner, uh, Greta Gerwig, who uh, also has a good chance, I think, there for Little Women. Uh, so that's just kind of a funny narrative that's going to be going on. They just had a child together, and uh, now one of them is probably going to get an Oscar. But which one of them will it be?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a good point. I, you know, I look at the adapted screenplay category, and you know, honestly, it could be the Irishman's best chance at winning one. I, I don't think. I mean yeah you could say maybe visual effects it has a shot in but I just I don't think it's going to you know turn up an award there I I think that The Irishman could end up being like vice last year getting nominated and and I guess it was I mean like the vice or favorite the favorite too um, it, Don't to speak, speak to The Irishman like, and Vice in the same sentence. Yeah sorry. <laughs> but you know getting nominated for a lot of awards and maybe firing a blank even I think that there was another movie that I was actually thinking if they got nominated for a bunch didn't win any last year that uh, I'm I, it's slipping my mind right now, but I think that it, it could end up like that. I mean, yes, it has 10 nominations. It's, it's absolutely from a just sheer numbers perspective. It, it has the nominations to be considered one of the top contenders, but when you go down on the list, I mean, it's best chance might be visual effects. Uh, I mean, maybe Joe Pesci or Al Pacino have a chance, but the, again, the, like as much as I love Joe Pesci and think that he's absolutely up there with Brad Pitt and should and in a, perfect world would give him a, a strong race for supporting actor. The fact that he and Al Pacino are both nominated in that category mean that, to me, it's like virtually impossible for them to beat out uh, yeah. one of them to beat out Brad Pitt. And again, I personally think that Brad Pitt probably deserves it over both of them. But again, in terms of a chance of winning one, you know, supporting actor was going to be a category that it probably had a chance in, and then they both got nominated. So uh, it, it, I think it's it's tough going for The Irishman. But just to circle back around to talk about the front runners here. You know, nineteen seventeen. Once upon a time in Hollywood. I agree, they are the top two. I think. You know, who knows how it ends up shaking out with the with the ballot system, how it is, and and I mean, so much can still change. It's, it's it is a month still until we get to the Academy Awards. But one of the questions I do have is that yes, Joker wasn't super successful at the Golden Globes. It did win two. I believe it won for best screenplay. Best, sorry, not best screenplay, my bad, uh, best original score and, of course, best actor in a motion picture drama for Joaquin Phoenix. I think uh, both awards at which the Academy, and at the Academy Awards, at least, they should also be favorites for both of those respective categories as well. But, you know, my thing is that as I sat back and think and thought about the 11 nominations for Joker today, and I kind of just asked myself, like, what is the narrative of Joker? I mean, yes, it's a billion-dollar movie, and, you know, I mean, I don't actually know off the top of my head or if any of the DC movies have grossed a billion dollars so far so forgive me for not doing my homework there but did, it's
1: a no i was going to say aquaman didn't make it to a billion
0: i think it might have actually i'm not sure i'd have to go double check i think it did actually make it to a billion now that i think about it but the point is like it's in it's in rare ground you know marvel of course almost breaking a billion on every attempt at this point yet yeah, there are some exceptions but for the most part hitting a billion pretty regularly i mean all three of the marvel movies this year hit a billion uh, i think that i mean infinity war certainly did last year I can't remember if Ant-Man and the Wasp and did. Black Panther certainly did. But the point is, like, regularly, you know, registering a billion dollars at the box office. And that's a more rare ground, especially for an R-rated uh, movie like Joker. But what is the narrative here? I mean, is it a step? Like, so I've, I've seen some articles today talking about, you know, this is the breakthrough that Black Panther promised for comic book movies. But for me, I mean, I'd have a hard time picturing you interviewing anyone in the Academy. And if you ask them cold, what genre is Joker? Nobody is saying comic yeah. book movie. It feels like to me this is an Oscar Beatty star-driven drama thriller type of movie that you'd expect. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix, mesmerizing performance. It's just uh, here. It is a Scorsese ripoff of. It's a it's a off of a Scorsese crime movie like that. I mean, no, I to would, say I, to say ripoff is probably unfair because Scorsese did. I think he is a producer on this film. But yeah, I, I mean that's that's the point, right? Like it's not a comic book movie. So the people who are I think trying to write a narrative. Around, I mean, forget what awards it ends up winning in a month's time, but to write a narrative around how Joker with 11 nominations is a breakthrough for comic book movies. I just don't know if I understand that too much.
1: This isn't the horse to back either. Like Endgame was so much better. Um, I, I don't get it, Scott. I've been arguing with some people on social media today about I'm sorry. this movie. I mean, people like it. I don't know why, but... Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on in saying that I don't think people are classified, you know, the people within the Academy are classifying this as a comic book movie, like maybe Joker is a comic book character, but this movie is very steeped in like, reality and, um you know, modern a history of modern crime society, movies. like, yeah. um that is the only message that you get from the movie is we live in a society. Um. <laughs> in my opinion. And, and, you know, that is why I think the Todd Phillips nomination is the most irritating thing, right? Because whether Scorsese, whether he ripped off Scorsese or not, like he borrows heavily from Scorsese, right? Like he's not doing anything original here. He's not. Um, And for Greg Gerwig, who took a story that has been told on screen like seven or eight times and made a version that was fresh and modern. And that was something that no one had ever done before. It's it's mind-boggling um, that that Phillips is getting in there ahead of uh, ahead of Greta Garwick, especially like like how tone-deaf can you be Oscars? Like you know this is going to be a narrative, and like we, we talked about it, like we 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 kind of knew that this was going to happen. Like even still, as Little Women was was racking up the nominations, I I wondered is is Greta going to slide in there? Um, but she didn't, and I think that you know, the other candidates are really probably deserving. Um, and so uh, Todd Phillips is absolutely the one to point to. I don't think, uh, his vision is, is anything, you know, putting aside the movie, right? Like you, I think even people who like the movie can look at the fa- this movie and say, well, I mean, I don't know that he brought anything incredibly new to, uh, to Joker. Like, I think that this is, you know, it's a Scorsese style crime movie. He he's borrowing heavily from other movies yeah. and other Taxi driver
0: and camp comedy,
1: king of comedy. Yeah. Like to the point he has De Niro playing, you know, this, this t- TV show host. Um, and I don't get it. I think they are giving in a lot to the fact that this movie did really well. And, you know, he's popular. Um, and, you know, maybe they wouldn't classify it as a comic book movie, but I do wonder if they're saying, oh, let's nominate Joker and that will get people off of our backs about nominating comic book movies.
0: Um, well, and also, I, again, I don't know if the Academy thinks like this, but certainly ABC has got to be thrilled that, you know, yeah. uh, the, you know, the a billion dollar grocer at the box office got the most nominations for their award show.
1: Yeah, no, um, I agree. But honestly, I don't want to waste any more time talking about what is. Far and away, the worst
0: movie that is nominated, um,
1: you know, for any award.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that that was kind of the first surprise that I want to talk about is just like again, how much Joker got nominated for the volume there, especially given the fact that it only got nominated for one acting uh, Oscar. It, it just boggles me. We'll see what how it ends up shaking out. But you it, something else. It is
1: somewhat surprising, but you know, when you think about the technical categories, right? Like, I think it was always probably a favorite to get in a lot of these technical categories, and they add up. Um, and so I I
0: don't understand the sound mixing and sound editing. Again, I, maybe I just don't understand that category. I don't understand those two nominations, but that's just me.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I don't know that I understand like the nuance of it either, but I, I think I still, if you asked me beforehand about what's going to get in there, I would, I would not not have been shocked in any regard to, to say, you know, to hear that Joker was going to get in there. Um, and so I think, like I said, the technical categories add up. Um, and obviously, you know, it did get some at the top of the top of the list too, even if only best actor in terms of the acting categories.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. All right. So I guess moving on to other surprises here, we'll get to snubs in a second, but we'll start with a positive. And I think one of those is that, you know, as much as this was, it did happen, I guess at the golden globes, but the fact that Scarlett Johansson did get the acting double, You know, I think that there's plenty of commentary around maybe there's some other people who might be deserving of some of these nominations, maybe particularly in the supporting actress category. Again, we'll leave that conversation for a little bit because I do want to circle back around to it. But this is something that I feel like not that many people are talking about, and I, I don't know how often this happens. I don't think it happens very often, but it's a huge deal. She's nominated for her lead role in Marriage Story and her supporting role in Jojo Rabbit and just caps off an incredible year for her, of course, also being in Avengers Endgame as much as maybe I think that someone else could have been nominated in supporting actress that the role was important and critical to the movie Jojo rabbit, but I don't know if it was necessarily worthy of an Oscar for me, but what do you think Scott?
1: Yeah. I mean, the last time I think I can remember this is Jamie Foxx got one for Ray and for collateral in the same year um, Mm. and one for Ray. But I think that's maybe one of the takeaways here is that I don't think Scarlett Johansson is going to win either of these awards. Um, And yeah. Actually, these are her first two nominations. Surprisingly enough, uh, yep. she's never been nominated prior to this year. But yeah, no, it's it's cool to see that. I I, I think I have you know some issue with the supporting actress nomination, like you were saying. Um, I think that if anyone was going to get double-nommed, it definitely should have been Florence Pugh. But I mean, there was never really a chance of that. Yeah, um, yeah. sorry. But like, right, if you're going to point to someone who had like the the year that deserves the double nom, I think I would pick her over over Scarjo. But um, yeah, I think that as far as, I mean, she definitely deserves it for marriage story. As far as Jojo rabbit goes, I think there are some snubs in this category, right? Like you talk about J Lo mm-hmm. being the big one when we'll talk about that, but shoes yep. in shoes in Zhao is someone else who got snubbed. Um, yep. There's somebody else I'm thinking um, uh, in supporting actress too. I think who um, also got snubbed, but um, it, it is a surprise to see her in there. Um, and it's a cool achievement for her because she's a great actress. But, you know, if we're going to nitpick, I think the supporting actress probably would have been better used on, on someone else. Spread the wealth, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think, uh, again, what, I mean, what she did in Marriage Story obviously it would be a huge coup if she were to, to, you know, usurp Renee Zellweger for the Best Actress award. I think she probably, in my opinion, she's the most deserving. I did, I got to raise my hands here. I didn't see Judy. I don't know what, uh, what that role was like. Maybe I'll catch it before the Oscars. Like, but Probably not. It just seems like it's such a foregone conclusion at this point that, I mean, that might be the biggest upset of the night if Renee Zellweger doesn't win uh, that Oscar. But I would love uh, ScarJo to win that award if she were. But yeah, for the supporting actress, we'll get to it later about who might have been better fits for, for a nomination there. I think Kathy Bates is also a bit of a question mark in that category for me. But again, it's an, it's a great achievement. I was trying to pull up the list of other people who have uh, who have been double nominated before. Uh, while while you were talking, and it, the list is a little bit longer than I thought, but it's only uh, like 12 or 13 other people, and it hasn't happened since mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett in, for Elizabeth and I'm Not There in 2007. Uh, so a very imp- impressive um, uh, achievement, uh, and it's only happened, I think, like three or four times this century. So again, props to her. She definitely uh, deserves it, and she's 35. I mean, Scarlett Johansson, it feels like she's been around hollywood for so long and well because she's been acting since she was a teenager so. well exactly yeah and the fact that she's only 35 and i mean she has you know the entire second you know, second half or two-thirds of her life left to keep acting uh so i'm just excited for her to get more nominations in the future because i tend to agree with you i don't know if she has a chance at winning either award really this year unfortunately
1: yeah she'll get one eventually
0: I hope so. I hope so. And you know, talking about Jojo Rabbit here, I think that's another big surprise—the fact that he got six nominations. Again, some of them absolutely uh, deserving of, of of nominations. The fact that you know Taika Waititi is getting nominated in, in the best adapted screenplay category. The fact that you know it it is getting some some love in other places. Of of course, getting the best picture nomination and the best supporting actress one. But again, the adapted screenplay. And I believe it's production design and costume design and film editing uh, nominations. You know, very impressive. And if I'm not going to, if I'm going to be honest, a little bit surprising. And, and it definitely supports what you were saying, you know, just a few minutes ago, talking about how the fact that it kind of has an outside chance of still being best picture, uh, best picture winner. I do think it's an outside chance, but the number of nominations that getting in here, and especially the categories it's getting nominated for, you can't rule it out yet.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I'll confess, I'm not too surprised by this. Like, I thought it was going to be Best Picture nominated. I think it was probably six
0: nominations
1: the number of nominations there maybe but again i think when you think about the categories all of them make a lot of sense like i think adapted screenplay yeah like i could have would have totally guessed that beforehand scarlett johansson maybe she wasn't like in the top five that we would have predicted beforehand but like she got some nominations like it, it certainly wasn't unheard of um and then you know as far as the technical categories right like i don't have a good sense i don't think of like what is what were the favorites for production design or film editing or anything like that and so i I don't think i even you know am qualified enough to say that that was a surprise there um and so yeah they they add up i I don't think this one is too surprising to me i think that this was always going to be one of the movies to me that was um firmly in the best picture conversation and i would have been more surprised if it hadn't got nominated there for sure
0: yeah, I mean, that, that's fair. I mean, I just say when I think of production design, I think of like the set and the setting that the movie is set in, which, again, I guess you, for that reason, you can kind of see it being the fact that it's set in World War II, kind of almost alternate history, kind of Nazi Germany. Uh, but I guess it's just the setting, maybe this is just my me being lukewarm on the movie, but it just hasn't stuck with me since then. not like other other things. I mean, certainly, again, we'll, we'll get to all this in, in just a second, but Midsommar not getting production design. It's just outlandish. I don't even know what they're looking for. Uh, in it, if if that's not getting it, but that being said, it, it was a bit of a surprise to me. But maybe you know, you I mean, they didn't and...
1: watch Midsummer. Let's be honest here; like they didn't watch it.
0: I mean, it makes you question how much H twenty four was pushing it too. But uh, yeah, even if they did, maybe not. Even Either if they way, weren't
1: pushing it all, they still should have watched it. <laughs> yeah, but they didn't.
0: There you go. All right, uh, moving on to other nominations, and again, this is kind of part one of a of a multi part conversation we're going to have as we talk about as we switch over to snubs. But Cynthia Arrivo, yeah, she was definitely getting some awards hype in the best actress category, but the fact that she ended up there, I think was a bit of a surprise. You know, it it is very hard to have this conversation without talking about kind of the people who were left out in the cold uh, as a result of this. And mainly in my mind, Aquafina and uh, Lupita Nyong'o probably, especially when you talk about a diversity perspective, because it did kind of feel like Cynthia Erivo. uh, Like how many people actually watched Harriet? I don't even know right like it, it surprised me a little bit i mean she she doesn't care kind of people
1: watch judy though probably not no
0: definitely not i don't yeah. think anyone watched judy but Did okay anyone that, that's watch a bit of an any of the movies yeah. <laughs> name the movies you watched uh, <laughs> name no. a movie yeah name, name a 2019 movie forget it name a movie this decade uh, i think that yeah so I, I yeah i think that again it felt like she was kind of a token diversity pick here which also makes me scratch my head about like why aquafina isn't an easier pick here since she won the golden globe well, but go ahead keep i keep mean me, go ahead I yeah, may, like in.
1: look I, I don't know how much i buy into this like i can't believe i might actually stand up for the academy but this does feel a little harsh but there is a very woke take going around about the fact that look at the the people of color who did not get nominated in the role the specific roles that they played and compare that to the role that Cynthia Erivo played, right? She's playing a slave in Harriet, right? Whereas you you look at somebody like J.Lo, who is playing an exotic dancer, a stripper. Um, and I think the the connection that people are drawing here is is sort of this that that the Oscar voters are acting as gatekeepers and saying, "Look, these are the types of roles we want to see people of color playing slaves, right? We don't and we don't want to see them playing." You know, more edgy roles like like what what uh what J Lo did in Hustlers. Um, I, again, I think that that's a far, a pretty far out there take, uh, and, and definitely on a certain part of woke Twitter. But I think it's something worth putting out there, right? Because she's the only person of color who who got nominated, and she plays well, a slave.
0: Antonio Banderas uh, got right. nominated, but and, and
1: again, there's also some debate going around about whether he's actually a person of color or not. But
0: um fair i mean anyway, i think the,
1: the only african american who got nominated in an acting category was cynthia rivo and she yeah. plays a slave like make of that what you will i think that there there's something there
0: yeah i mean she plays a slave who like starts a rebellion but I, again but I, still, I right like sure i i think i don't i mean i don't personally buy that i think it's i don't need I don't either, a conversation but. worth having but i just i Like, guys, it's so it's so much easier to have other like very low hanging fruit conversations and very very substantive low hanging fruit conversations about this. I think introducing that is just like, I mean, maybe again, I can kind of see it. It feels like it obfuscates the point a little bit to me.
1: Yeah, I think the better point here is just that this is a biographical Oscar Beatty drama. yeah, And as opposed to the farewell, right, like an original independent movie by a female person of color who directed it yeah. um and, and us and which hustlers, is a genre film right and us which is a genre film yep. granted i think it gets a little more stock than that because it is jordan peele right like he won an oscar for his last movie which also a horror film which but, was a genre film yes <laughs> somehow exactly.
0: somehow um
1: and even hustlers right i think like it's Okay, it's a true story movie, but like this isn't the traditional type of Oscar baity movie. It's about strippers again, Um, and so I think that that is probably the better argument to be made there. Of like, we're not rewarding people of color for adventurous roles. Um, I, you know, we're rewarding them in for you know the same old Oscar baity movies, like playing a famous black person, not as playing a normal person like Aquafina is in the Farewell, right? Like just playing. You know, yeah. A person.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it speaks to a wider conversation about how much better of a chance you have at winning or being nominated for an Oscar when you play a real person. But I think the point is the point is well taken there. And maybe there is some sort of like cross section of amplification, which is a, probably a horrible way to phrase that. But the fact that I mean, I think in terms of original characters, is it just Nicole Barber? So like who Scarlett Johansson plays for Marriage Story? I mean, I guess technically Joe March is would count as well as an original character but the fact that she's been betrayed so many times on screen it doesn't really feel original at that point um but i mean besides that yeah it's just it's just scarlett johansson's character that's not a person who is a known quantity already
1: yeah and i think if you're going to point to someone here who maybe could have been left out like look she's amazing but Charlize theron i think like i think bombshell is a pretty good movie but uh this for me was more of a hair and makeup job. Like I think her performance is good, but yeah. I think the thing that people were talking about with this performance was look how much she looks like Megan Kelly. Look how much she sounds like Megan Kelly. And like, I don't know if, if the voting for her really went any deeper than that. So I think, like, I, I have, even if Cynthia Erivo is, like, the the worst performance on, or, you know, weakest performance among, among the bunch, I have trouble just because of the diversity aspect of saying, oh, she should have been left out in favor of Aquafina or, you know, someone else like that. Um, and so I think if you're going to kick someone else out, um, maybe kick out Charlize, but, I mean, you know, I, I might even say kick out Renee Zellweger, but there was no chance of that, and I haven't seen Judy so.
0: Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen Harriet or Judy to be fair. I, this is one of the categories that I have a little bit, I'm a little bit more blind on. So I, it's hard for me to say that either. I definitely hear what you're saying though. And I, and I don't necessarily disagree. I do think that Charlize does a little bit more than a hair and makeup job, but the, the hype yeah. that the, but the hype that the, to your point,
1: the hype that the role. Yeah, get, I agree. Like, That's just how it's being perceived.
0: Yeah, no, I think she not unlike Christian Bale. I think she does more than just the hair and makeup job. Uh, Christian Bale, of course, from vice last year playing Dick Cheney, but, uh, I think that she, she does do, do more than that. And, and the fact that she's able to completely disappear into that role where I look like Nicole Kidman, I just couldn't help. And just, I just kept seeing Nicole Kidman playing Gretchen Carlson uh, in that role, just, to, just as a juxtaposition. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, again, I don't think that's a bad thing, but you could, she really does disappear into that role of Megan Kelly a little bit, a little bit better. If that is the metric they're using, than, than Nicole Kidman does.
1: Yeah. And I, I just on the topic of that film, I think, I was viewing Margot Robbie's getting nominated a lot at, with a little bit of skepticism, just from what I'd heard about the movie and maybe yeah. that she wasn't in it that much. I do, having seen the movie, like she deserves, I think she deserves it. Like I, yeah. I think she's excellent in the, movie. I mean, maybe if I was ranking my top five, she wouldn't make it in there, but like, I don't have a problem with her getting nominated. She's in it more than I, I was led to believe. And I yeah. think she's really excellent throughout. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of my major complaints with the movie is that the, the movie doesn't engage more with that character, but what, she does do, and, and Margaret Robbie, that is, what she does do with that character and the way that the film does. I mean, she's the most interesting character in the movie, and yeah. that's why I wanted her to, her to have more screen time. But I totally agree. I mean, the performance from her is amazing, as is Charlie Theron. Moving on from that, I, and we talk about Cynthia Rivo I think just quickly going through a couple others, like Ryan Johnson for an adapted or sorry, original screenplay nomination. Surprised, but awesome. I mean, the more I love Knives Out get, I mean, again, I think that Knives Out is one of those films, like, I don't think I, with the maybe the exception of Booksmart, I don't think I had more fun seeing a movie this year. I mean, it, was, it is up there with, like, just really enjoyed the experience of seeing that movie, uh, thoroughly enjoyable. And, and it getting recognition, the fact that it's a comedy, yes, it's a little bit, it's not your standard, you know, straight down the pipe um, comedy, but it is a comedy, nevertheless. The fact that it's getting recognition is always a good thing. I think, because it just doesn't happen at the Oscars very much. Yeah. Moving past that, and I think this will ultimately transition us into the snubs, which you've kind of already started talking about. But to start with a good surprise, Florence Pugh getting nominated for Best, uh, Best Supporting Actress. I say it's a surprise because she hadn't been getting that much love. Some award shows, yes, but really not any of the big ones yet. And then the fact that she gets it here. Scott, I mean, we both think that it's absolutely deserving. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you some airtime to talk about one of the things that I know that you were very happy about this morning.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like, obviously her performance standing alone on Little Women, I think is amazing and deserving of the nomination. But I love seeing this just because of the whole year that she had, right? Like with with Midsommar, which is a movie that was never going to get nominated. Even if maybe if you twisted my arm, I might say that's even the better performance. Um, And also Fighting With My Family, which was really good. And she was really good in it. Like, I think she deserves recognition in some capacity for, the you know body of work that she did this year probably a better body of work than any actor did this year adam and driver well no because adam driver did that one movie that we don't say the name of but i think that she, yeah, I, I was okay. th- i was thrilled to see this um that that she got in right because it, because it was a little bit of a surprise she wasn't getting even though she had the initial buzz she hadn't gotten nominated in a lot of other places little women wasn't really getting recognized but uh I thought that the movie would make a comeback for the Oscars and it did, but this was still one where I was a little up in the air. Like I thought Saoirse would probably get in less sure about Florence Pugh. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Like she, her future like is, is so bright um, after this and uh, it's great to see her, you know, m- much like her, her co-star Saoirse Ronan, getting an Oscar at a young age and hopefully setting the tone for what is to come. By the way, Sersha picking up her fourth nomination at age 25.
0: What are you doing with your life? Not yeah, sure. I mean, but but I mean, let's be honest. Florence Pugh way better than Sarah Ronan as an actress. So <laughs> let's not have this debate. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't uh,
1: don't make me choose between the two of
0: them. No, they're both amazing. But uh, yeah, I many nominations in both of their futures. I'm I'm sure. But switching gears, but sticking with Little Women. And using it as a jumping off point for the I mean, it's hard to say what the biggest snub was. Maybe JLo was, but just starting first and the one that's going to get the most air time is the lack of female directors in the best directors category. Uh, Greta Gerwig, in, in many ways, being the biggest snub among those. But it's not like they didn't have a, you know, it's not like they had a dearth of other of other directors to choose from. They had Lulu Wong who, of course, directed The Farewell. They had Lorene Scafaria, who directed Hustlers. They clearly didn't like that movie. Uh, they had Marielle Heller, who, who directed A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. No. Yes. Yeah, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Wow, I like had, I blanked there on which one was the documentary and which one Alma was the Her-
1: movie. Alma Harrell, Casey
0: Lemons, yeah. Celine Sciama, Melina Metz- Matsoukas, yeah. Olivia yeah. Wilde. They Olivia had so Wild. many options. Best Director. Again, I'm not saying that four out of five of the, of the people driving for Best Director aren't deserving, I am saying that Todd Phillips isn't, but uh, <laughs> I, there's just so many to choose from. And I understand the argument that kind of that goes against this point of just like, well, you know what? Like, if they're deserving, they're deserving. Like, sometimes, you know, there are – like, the fact that there are five males who are deserving of the, nominate, of the nomination and some women just out of the cold – I did hear some interesting arguments that there is literally no way that if Hustlers is directed by Martin Scorsese, it doesn't get nominated for best director. It doesn't get nominated for uh, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, I actually would, I actually would agree with that. If it's Scorsese.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm saying if it's Scorsese, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just like any male director, it's not necessarily going to get sure. but I I think the point holds that this was a year full of incredibly talented and incredibly like strong uh, performances from female directors. Not that other years haven't been, but this year in particular, I mean, You can count on two hands the number of people like Oscar, you know, worthy directing performances by women this year. And none of them got chosen. So, Scott, I mean, this again, I think this is probably going to be the most talked about snub of this year.
1: First of all, I'm losing my mind at people who are saying, well, were there any good films directed by female directors this year? I've seen that question asked multiple times today, uh, and it makes me just want to scream. Don't engage. But (laughs) um, because there's
0: so many you can list, right? Like, we just listed, like, well, the, later, the people later asking later. that question are just are literally just going to see Joker yeah. over and over again, right? Uh, they're, they're just yeah. trolling, but
1: uh, I also think, like, so Tony Revolori, who um, Flash Thompson from Spider Man, but he uh, he made a really good point on Twitter today, which is like, uh, uh, and originally, you know, when we were having the Oscar so white problem and Oscar so male problem, he kind of viewed it as, as I did, as look, this Black is of opportunity. Problem this is a problem within the studio system, right? Like people, yeah. these people just aren't getting enough opportunities to participate in quality films. That's not the case anymore. Right. Right. Like look at the films that had pers- people of color in starring roles. Look at the pe- films that were directed and written by women this year. I think it's just, it, it's absurd. And, and like the, it it, it, it has gotten to the point where like, you can't just dismiss it as well. They're just, you know, there weren't enough good movies out there. Right. Like that. These were the Academy just looked at it and said, these were more deserving. No, like, in no world is Todd Phillips more deserving than Greta Gerwig. Again, for reasons that I mentioned, also for the fact, like Florence Pugh was making a really interesting point today that Greta Gerwig getting snubbed kind of proves the thesis. It's a, of it's little, a little
0: Women meta narrative. A Little Women,
1: right? Yeah, that like men's work is is inherently valued more than women's work is, um, and that's the reason that this film film feels so relevant because it's still happening and it, it yeah. just happened again, um, and. If I mean, let's put 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 the um, shoe on the other foot. If Joker was directed by a woman, woman, no way it's getting a nomination. No way. Um, and maybe Catherine Bigelow, but yeah, maybe. But like again, that's like that's that's almost even worse, right? Because it's like the yeah. Oh, here's the token female it's right? Like, we love yeah. Catherine Bigelow. Like we'll nominate her, of course. Like look, we're woke. Um, no, I think that's even, exactly the point that I was trying to make too. Even going down further down the line, like. Frozen two right didn't get a nomination for best animated feature directed by a woman um, Lee, like yeah. it's a trend it is a trend you cannot deny it you cannot sit back in ignorance and say well there just weren't enough good movies directed by women or they're just the the women- female directors just didn't deserve to get in over the male directors it's just not true it's just not true and
0: yeah the troubling part of the conversation almost um, and going back to something I was saying earlier is that like the conversation around like oh there were there like the let's just say in a world where you believe that joker and todd phillips is deserving there were five you know films this year directed by men that were deserving as if female was like okay we'll go to the female directors when there aren't five incredibly directed yeah. films by by male directors i, I think uh, some of the conversation that i've seen around that is like tinged and like almost framed in that way and i find that very troubling uh to to me when the conversation is geared around that i'm like sure like are the films deserving to be nominated for best director sure but just because they're directed by a male does not give them preference over female directed film films, it, it, you know, on a level playing field where all the films are equal, right? Like that, it, that world just doesn't happen. And so much of that conversation today feels like it's, you know, hinged around that point. And that I find that confusing. And it just seems like if you pause and think about the premise of what you're saying, you'd understand that it doesn't, doesn't really hold up very well.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's maddening to think about.
0: Yeah. All right. So some other snubs that we've kind of already started talking about a little bit, at least like Jennifer Lopez not getting in. We did kind of defer to now. I think that, yes, Scarlett Johansson may be a question mark for the Jojo Rabbit nomination. I personally would take off Kathy Bates first, probably. Again, like I understand the, the two minute scene that got her this nomination. It was a great scene. Maybe I'm a little just salty that Paul Walterhauser just got no consideration whatsoever for the lead role here when when he really deserved it. Uh, but J-Lo, I mean, there's other, you know, you mentioned Jin Zhao as well, someone here. These are big snubs, particularly J-Lo, who, you know, when Hustlers came out, and I understand that, you know, things change over time, but this is a movie that came out in September, October. It's not like this was like a first half of the year release. But, you know, the front runner for the Oscar, I think when, when it came out and uh, just nowhere to be found in this nomination.
1: I mean, yeah, this is another example of a movie where you wonder if they actually watched it, right? Like these, these performance based movies like Judy and like Harriet and like, like hustlers, right? Which really their entire Oscar campaign was based around a single performance. You know, you do have to wonder like if, if Academy voters put this screener down at the bottom of their pile and said, look, I'm going to watch uh, Jojo Rabbit, I'm gonna watch Marriage Story. Right? Like, I'm gonna watch the movies that are going to get a lot of nominations that are actually in the best picture race, and you know, maybe I'll get to these eventually. And they just, just didn't get to them, and that's why that is why JLo is getting stunned. But even still, right? Like, they didn't watch Harriet, they probably didn't watch Judy, but those movies were getting nominations. Did so they watch Richard
0: the Jewell? Copy. Probably because that's so much talk around, yeah. little yeah, you know,
1: uh, it's an Oscar baity movie, they yeah, probably watched it, but um. Yeah, it, it is. It is surprising. It, it is absolutely surprising. Like again, none of the people who got in there are surprising, but them getting in over um, J Lo, I think, just makes it more clear that this is that there's no way Laura Dern is going to lose this. Like, I think J Lo was the only person who was could have given her a fight, and she's not in the race now. So I think it, it's over. And I, honestly, I think all of the acting races are over. I'm. It's sad to say, but I think the the races to watch are going to be the screenplays and the director and best picture. I don't think any of the acting races, there's, there's much uh, tension left in them.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And I, and I certainly agree with the point around that this, this category is done. I mean, I don't see anyone beating Laura Dern. I agree that JLo was the only person who had a chance, but apparently she didn't have a chance because she didn't even have a chance of getting nominated. Uh, So that's, I mean, that's, um, yeah, so it was, it was shocking. That's probably the the single thing that surprised me most, uh, even, even more than, than Joker getting so many nominations, uh, but you know, moving on from that, I mean, sticking with the acting acting categories, we talked about how Aquafina being the Golden Globe winner for Best Actress Motion Picture uh, Musical or Comedy getting snubbed. You know, Lupita Nyong'o, someone who won, I believe, the Best Actress award from the HCA Awards, uh, the Hollywood Critics Association Awards, just last week. Uh, someone who who didn't get in, uh, among others. But if you flip over now and talk about a category that we haven't really talked about yet. And that's the best actor category. There's quite a few snubs here as well. I think first and foremost among those, I got to say Adam Sandler again, I'm not necessarily surprised by this exclusion, but it's a big snub. I think, I mean, the Sandler's best performance in his career. He would definitely be in my top five. I mean, I think best actors are strong category this year for sure, but he'd be in there for me. I think you can also make very uh, conceded efforts or or, uh, sorry, uh, very concerted arguments for, Robert De Niro here getting snubbed Eddie Murphy for Dolomite is my name getting snubbed and another winner from the Golden Globes for best actor in motion picture musical comedy Taryn Egerton uh, not appearing anywhere here again for me that's not that big of a snub I didn't know I didn't really think that Taryn Egerton uh, is someone who could beat out any of the people who actually ended up getting nominated I think they were better performances but again coming off that Golden Globes win coming off the fact that Remy Malik won last year for Bahini Rhapsody, I think puts things in perspective that one, this was a stronger year, and two, Harry Malk shouldn't have won Best Actor last year. I mean, it's an absolute joke. Uh, the fact that Terry Egerton was better than better than him and didn't even get nominated this year. Uh, but that being said, you know, the people who might be kind of the first outs, so to speak, of this category, Jonathan Price for the two popes, thought he was good. Anthony Hopkins also got a nominee. I thought Anthony Hopkins was definitely better than him in the movie. That was just my take. But again, a little bit surprised here. The fact that kind of the two popes had an upswing, uh in in how many Golden Globe nominations got, got completely shut out? That you know, it did get completely shut out at the Golden Globes, but it did have a lot of nominations and it kind of disappeared off the radar for a lot of the Guild Awards and um the Critics' Choice Awards, things like that. But has come back here with a couple acting nominations, which is a little bit surprising. And then Antonio Banderas for *Painting Glory*. I think he's fantastic in *Painting Glory*. Don't get me wrong; I think he's very deserving of a nomination, as is Jonathan Price. But again. These are people getting in ahead of Adam Sandler, Robert De Niro, Eddie Murphy, and Taron Egerton.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you can, It shows you that um, the comedy or musical category is very far, far attenuated from you know the drama categories when it comes to the the Oscars. Like Eddie Murphy and Taron Egerton, you know, were were the favorites, and one of them won in the comedy or musical category. Neither got the Oscar nomination. Same thing for Aquafina, right? She won the comedy or musical category, not nominated for an Oscar. Um, it just shows the disrespect that these types of movies get, even if, you know, Taryn Ag- Egerton does probably doesn't deserve to be in there. Um, yeah, and I mean, looking at talking about Adam Sandler, right? Like, I don't think it's a surprise at all. He hadn't gotten nominated anywhere, really, besides, like,
0: critics associations. Um, yeah, he won the NY, the yeah. New York Film Critics Society or whatever, but yeah. Right.
1: But I don't, I don't think it's a surprise, but I think if you can connect it to JLo snub and say, maybe if you want to try to explain both of these, you can say that these are people who are not known for doing good films, right? Like they're, they're known for, uh, they're not perpetual Oscar uh, nominees, to, to be sure, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, and I think that these perform part of the appeal of these performances is that they were so out of left field, right? Like, you didn't expect JLo to give one of the best performances of the year. You didn't expect Adam Sandler to give one of the best performances of the year. And maybe the Oscars, in addition to the fact that they, they just didn't watch these movies, maybe they just couldn't get past the fact that, hey, we're, you know, if we're nominating JLo, we're nominating the whatever her character is in Geely. Or if we're nominating, you know, Adam Sandler, then we're nominating Billy Madison, too. And Murder like, mystery. Like, as much as I. Think that those movies are trash. Like, I can separate myself and say, Look, J Lo was amazing in Hustlers, Adam Sandler was amazing in Uncut Gems. They
0: probably should both be in there. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, uh, of the people who got nominated versus people who got excluded, I think for me, I'd throw in like Adam sandler's the only one that I just feel like, man, I think he really, really should be in there. But I think, like I said, you can make arguments for these other people as well uh, to get in pretty strong arguments. And yes, that speaks to the strength of the year, uh, but also just that you mentioned the disrespect for you know non Oscar Beatty drama films because even though Sandler's uncut you know in a cut, uncut gems which is definitely a drama suspense thriller uh, it's not the flavor of Oscar Beatty suspense thriller drama that you'd expect normally and so just cuz the show there's a certain type of movie that often gets rewarded here and it's movies like the two popes which I liked very much but um, not near the quality of uncut gems in my opinion yeah but that's that Scott, you mentioned briefly already kind of the last big snub that I want to talk about here is in the animated feature category. Yes, you know, co-directed by Jennifer Lee. Her directing partner is a male, but to your point exactly, you know, kind of the the face of that movie is Jennifer Lee, even though there are two directors. I think the, the people who, the, you know, she's the person who often gets interviewed in the context of Frozen and Frozen 2, because uh, I also believe she helps write it as well, whereas her directing partner does not. But that being said, Frozen 2, compl- like, left off the animated feature category. I think that Maybe this isn't wholly surprising because I always thought Missing Link was kind of an odd man out in the animated category coming in to nominations. And I knew it was going to get in. I just didn't expect Frozen 2 to be the one that drops it out. I mean, Scott, you were going as far to say that Frozen 2 was guaranteed a nomination, making a billion dollars. Might even be the favorite ahead of Toy Story 4 uh, when we talked about potential Oscar picks, whether last week or the week before. I can't remember. So this was also a huge snub. I mean, granted, I still think Toy Story 4 was always the favorite here but frozen 2 getting left off a big surprise especially since the first one got nominated i think the first one might have, did that even win best animated feature i don't even remember but frozen oh, Two did, yeah. i mean frozen 2 was was a much better film in my opinion although apparently that's not a consensus view
1: yeah they got lego movie right like they got nominated for best song but not for best animated feature um exactly yeah. what happened to the lego movie but um yeah no it is a surprise i think after the golden globes, I cooled on his chances of winning perhaps, but I mean, certainly thought it would get the nomination. Um, but Klaus, right. Klaus sne- sneaks in there, a Netflix release at the end of the year, another sort of sneaky win for Netflix. Yeah. Um, then, and I
0: lost my body as well,
1: but I think i have always felt like I lost my body was going to be in there. But, um, yeah. Klaus is one that I think probably if you had to point to one that was maybe the one that's took frozen to spot, it's probably Klaus. Um,
0: Yeah, very cool film, though, in terms of the animation style.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I hear. But yeah, I mean, so you still feel that Toy Story 4 is the favorite. I don't know. I mean, Missing Link for me, like it won the Golden Globe. Like,
0: I mean, maybe it's just my bias of having seen both those films. But like, and man, Toy Story 4 is like miles better than Missing Link, in my opinion. But yeah, it's the it's the better movie. But who? yeah, I mean, it's Pixar. I think it's absolutely favorite over Lego. I mean, I'm sorry, like, like I could be I'm not saying it's going to win hundred percent sure, but like it, it's got. I mean, it's Pixar. It's Toy Story four. It's Toy Story. Forget a Like it's got to be favorite to win over. When's the last time that Pixar won? Coco. Didn't Coco win? Coco. Coco won. Yeah. won. won.
1: Um, yeah. yeah. No. I mean, you would think that, even though Leica is also Leica is a is a perpetual nominee, um, but it hasn't won before. I don't think. No, but I don't. It probably hasn't yeah. won the Golden Globe before either. Um, and so. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe for the sake of going for something different, they go for for missing link. But you're probably right. Probably is Toy Story 4 is to lose.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. like I'm not I'm not saying that Toy Story 4 is like a definitely like lock for this for this win. I, I think that the Golden Globes proves that it's not. But in many ways, if there's anyone out there splitting like if Frozen 2 and, and Toy Story 4 were splitting the vote being both from Disney, it, it does help Toy Story 4. Although, yeah. I mean, clearly not top of mind for Oscar voters if it didn't even get nominated. I don't know, but that, that's kind of my perspective on it. I just like – I mean I don't know uh, – again, so uh, I guess you have to think about this, and this is why I think Cody Stray 4 is like such a lock, is that the nominations are done by the individual guilds. So like the, the animated you – know, the, the members of all the different guilds – because it's, it's a little bit different for animated. But the members of all the different guilds who are connected to animation, they are the ones who vote on the nominees. But the full Academy votes on the awards. And that's why I think that there's just no way the Toy Story Four doesn't win. Yeah. I mean, I say no way. I'm being a little bit more bombastic there, I guess. But like I, I still think Toy Story Four is the favorite in this category for that reason. And again, like how many people even watch Missing Link? I, I do not think the Full Academy is watching Missing Link. Um, but I think the Full Academy is probably watching Toy Story Four. So that alone makes me think that Toy Story Four is the favorite. But also just like, I mean, anyone who watches those two films, like, I don't know how. Like, yes, Missing Link, stop-motion animation. It's a little bit more innovative than what Toy Story 4 was doing with their animation. It's
1: a good movie.
0: Yeah, I know. It is a good movie, but it's not Toy Story 4 caliber for me. Um, And that's really all I I guess I have to say about that. Yeah, no, I think those are fair points. All right, kind of last couple things that I want to talk about here before we conclude our discussion. It's kind of like what I've uh, affectionately called our pour one out section of the podcast. And the first one I got to say is is, as much as, sadly, I guess I'm not... wholly surprising nomination. Uh, Glasgow did not receive a nomination for uh, best original song. Scott, I'll allow you to step onto your soapbox here. If you hear something crackling, that is just the sound of my
1: couch burning in the background. But <laughs> um, yeah, Scott, I think like, look, I, I thought it was a long shot when it got on the short list. I was excited because I thought, oh, maybe this is, this is the chance. Um, but honestly, what ended up occurring is worse than like the, right. The Beyonce song, which is just, Idiotic. Um, did not Spirit get or whatever. Yeah, also did yeah. not get nominated. Right when it did get nominated, I think at the Golden Globes. Um, mm-hmm. and I assumed that that would be in there, and that that would be the one I'm raging about. And it also didn't get nominated. But it's honestly worse, right? Because then if, if Beyonce gets nominated, you could just point to it and say, "Look, they just picked the most popular songs. They picked the artists that they knew. They picked the movies that they'd heard of. They Pick the Lion King, right? And and Rocket Man is in there. Um, and." harriet is in there like the movies that they've heard of but then you have this song from breakthrough getting nominated right and breakthrough is this faith-based movie about the kid who gets trapped under the iceberg or whatever um and like you cannot tell me you cannot sit there and tell me that the godless heathens in the academy more of them are watching breakthrough than are watching wild rose like That's just not true. Um, And so that's what makes it more insulting, right? The idea that they probably watched Wild Rose, they probably heard Glasgow, um, and they just said, no, there are five songs that are better than this. Um,
0: Yeah, if they didn't watch Wild Rose, they probably watched Chernobyl, which also has Jesse Buckley.
1: They heard the song at at the very least, right? Like if you're hearing the song from Breakthrough, you're probably hearing the song Glasgow, right? And then it was picking up some steam on Twitter and stuff. It's just absurd, right? Like it just... This is, you know, one of those clear examples where you have to just sit back and, and say, look, I think it was Zoe Kazan maybe who tweeted it, this and, and said like love her. that uh, awards are ephemeral and that art is forever. Right. And Glasgow is going to last forever. Whatever song that wins the Oscar is going to go away in a year's time.
0: I hate to say it, but I think this I probably I'm going to love me again. Yeah. Rocket Rocketman is probably the right. favorite. And that's so dumb, right? Because it's an Elton John song, right? Like, Elton John has so many
1: iconic songs. Is anyone honestly going to be like, oh, this is one of Elton John's best songs? Like, right? Like, on the greatest hits of Elton John, I'll Never Love Again is going to be on there. No, it's going to be his other 30 great songs.
0: That were all also in Rocketman. I think that right. for me, I'd, I'd prefer Cynthia Erivo to win, because, I mean, she has no chance in Best Actress, so winning for that song, because she also, uh, you know, enters the much-vaunted Ca- uh, category of people who are nominated for an acting performance and a musical performance in the same year of course it did happen very recently and then the fact that happened last year with Lady Gaga Lady Mary, yeah. but it also ha- it's only other, happened one other time besides that and that's with uh, Mary Mary J Blige for Mudbound uh, a few years back so this, she's oh, it's also quit-
1: two years ago so the last three years it's happened
0: I was going to say, yeah, so it's very uh, recent, very new, and uh, she enters a very much vaunted category of of people, all women, who have uh, have done that. So I'd love to see her win that because, I mean, there's just no way she wins Best Actress uh, whatsoever. Just don't even care about this category anymore. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, one other thing to pour one out for. I think this is a, this we this is one we can breeze by. That's just genre films in general. Not a surprise whatsoever that they're not respected by the Oscar. We already talked about that. But the last one here, and I think this is a little bit more surprising since since you know they are pretty much the only indie film studio with a Best Picture win like ever. Period. And that's A twenty four only gained one nomination this year. I mean, I think this is one of their strongest years in film. Uh, and I don't I don't know what didn't resonate with the with the Oscar voters this year, but this is one of their strongest years and they got one nomination for cinematography uh, for the lighthouse. Oh, I, mean, lighthouse
1: yeah.
0: I mean, I just, it's so hard to fathom. I mean, I understand like, look, besides Midsommar and um, I mean, I said, besides Midsommar and I cut gems, but those are two of my top five, six movies of the year right there. I mean, they have Wave, they have the farewell. They have so many other films. I understand why those movies maybe aren't getting nominated, but it, it's really mind boggling to me that they got so little love this year.
1: Yeah, I think they just – I was saying this to someone else, but I think they messed up their release schedule of putting – Yeah, and
0: we talked about this earlier too. Putting,
1: yeah, putting The Farewell, right, which is their clear, I think, number one contender for an Oscar, earliest in the year, and then putting movies like Midsommar and The Lighthouse – I mean, Midsommar was summer, but The Lighthouse and Uncut Gems, and even Waves, right, which is – you know, it's it's a little bit out there. Uh, like, I, I mean, could, if it
0: has, if, if Wave has a better last fifteen minutes, I mean, every I think it's getting talked about for awards.
1: Yeah, because I mean, like it has some moonlight vibes to it, right? Like, I, I wouldn't have been shocked to see yeah. it get in there, but but nevertheless, like they put the farewell early on. When if it was a November release, right, it probably gets more nominations. Like that's I think that's just the fact the fact of it. Um, and so it is surprising, uh, but like, look, eight twenty four is hotter than ever. Like. Everyone is talking about on Twitter. Is talking about uncut gems. Midsommar was getting a ton of discussion in the summer when it came out. The Lighthouse. A lot of people seem to have a lot of goodwill towards. So this is again, this is another one of those art uh, awards are ephemeral. Artists forever, right? Because um, I think these movies are going to stand the test of time better than uh, you know Joker or, or some dumb crap like that. Like people aren't going to be talking about Joker in ten years.
0: Yeah, I mean, who who knows what A twenty four is going to have coming down the coming down the pipe next year? Uh, for me, it's tough for them because this is my favorite year in terms of top to bottom of their filmography, in terms of sheer volume. My favorite year from them, and it is disappointing uh, that they, they just received a so little love, and it, it sucks because I mean, I I don't know if that was actually true what I said a minute ago. And that the only independent film studio to ever win a Best Picture, that's, I mean, that's probably a little bit exaggerating, but it was a big deal when I mean for multiple reasons. But a big deal when Moonlight won Best Picture. All right, Scott. Last question. It's kind of been uh, sitting under our entire conversation so far, but is hashtag Oscars so white trending again yet on Twitter? Can we uh, can we just go check right now whether it's trending?
1: Um, yeah, well, I guess we can. But, I mean, it definitely is, right? Like, it, maybe not at this exact moment, but earlier in the day, it probably has been. And right now see right now the college football national championship is, is going on. So that is dominating a lot of the trends, but definitely have seen my fair share of tweets about this today. And like, as I tweeted about the best director nominees and and Greta not getting nominated, like the Academy deserves every single minute, every single inch of tweet that will be, um, you know, sprayed towards them about uh, Oscar so wide and Oscar so male. Like, look, you, you, you know, you, you're getting what you deserve. So, um, I I mean, I'd like to think that this is going to, uh, open their eyes, but it never has in the past. So why should next year be any different? Yeah. I wouldn't get your hopes up. I no, Trust me. They are not up. (laughs) They've never been up for the Oscars.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, there, there are a lot of female filmmakers very making very prominent movies, not necessarily Oscar baiting movies, but you, you you have female directors for Wonder Woman 1984. You have female director for, uh, birds of prey you have female but but Look,
1: the real question is do we have five male filmmakers who are uh you know more more deserving of course
0: i mean i'm very excited for this movie but denny villeneuve is making a movie next year so uh that's releasing around christmas time if it holds if it holds its release uh but yeah we'll see
1: if there are five males we can't go to the women
0: yeah i mean there's no need to i mean they're there so right it's easier all right scott with that conversation wrapped up we should definitely end episode 74 Oh, so like it's got uh do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today i'll tell you what i I actually have a question for you in the podcast how excited are you for 2020 and tv because we both talked about before this recording that we might watch uh, the first episode of the outsider on hbo uh later tonight yeah no
1: i confess i don't know like a ton about what is coming on the landscape uh, of tv for the rest of the year but like the outsider's out right now uh the final seasons of Bojack horseman and, uh, the new season of sex education are coming, are both coming out really soon. The,
0: um, presumably you season three will be coming out this year. Probably
1: like at the end of this year, but, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to, to watching some stuff. I mean, Mrs. Mazel will have another season probably into this year, but, um, yeah, discovering some new stuff, right? Like The Outsider looks really good. I haven't, I don't know much about this Stephen King novel.
0: Um, because it only came out in 2018. It's a 2018
1: novel. Yeah. So. And, and maybe with some of the big series and stuff like Game of Thrones and and stuff like that finishing up, uh, maybe there will be some room for the next big series to come in there and maybe it'll be something that I actually get in with on the ground floor and can can follow all the way. But, you know, I'm more about the movies anyway, so.
0: Yeah, now uh, slight damper on your parade there. I think that with game of Thrones being out of the way for their HBO kind of middle of the, or early middle of the year release, like kind of the a- the April, May, June time period. I imagine Westworld season three will take that. I imagine a, you know, a season three of succession. will also kind of take euphoria that,
1: when that wasn't well, that happens?
0: euphoria. Definitely. will. I think Barry, man, you gotta watch Barry, Barry is yeah. so good. Barry yeah. season three, killing Eve season three. Also this year, there's lots to get excited about. Um, there's also a bunch of uh, things that I didn't realize it happened, but uh, Hulu FX, uh, kind of collaborations or something that apparently is is going to be happening now a, a lot this year. And they have an Alex Garland show called Devs that looks really interesting, as well as another one called Mrs. America mm. uh, that looks really interesting. Well so I mean, I keep an eye on those FX projects that are distributing through Hulu. I think that looks really good. I, I, I should I shouldn't be so surprised when I say that. I mean they're all owned by Disney now. But uh, I think that those those kind of more mature shows that are dropping on Hulu as opposed to Disney Plus, I think those things are, are things that really interest me. And I think this year could be really great. I mean, we haven't really talked about HBO besides The Outsider and Westworld and Euphoria, but apparently they have a bunch of original shows uh, coming out this year that are really exciting. They have a new comedy called Avenue 5 with Hugh Laurie, who I'm a big fan of, that I'm going to check out. I don't know if it's going to necessarily be my vibe because it, it seems like kind of a Veep replacement to me which that show never really clicked with me, but I love Hugh Laurie, so I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, things like that. Barry, I mean, very exciting stuff. Uh, I think it's going to be a great year. And something that's already come out this year, Dracula, uh, that came out right at the new year. I'm two out of the three episodes into that, which is technically a ne- well, it's a Netflix-sky combo production uh, from the per- creators of Sherlock, uh, Mark Gaddis and Stephen Moffat. And I think it's really well done. I'm not a huge horror fan as all our listeners of the podcast will know, or especially monster hard, but I think that show does it really well. And I gave it a shot because it's Moffitt and Gaddis who did Sherlock. Um, not everything with Sherlock was the best. I thought kind of the end of the series, I don't think they're ever going to go back and do a series five, but the end of the way they wrapped the show, I mean, I just thought it was a terrible episode to be honest, but I think that they overall, the stuff they create is really interesting, really great. And they did a great job with Dracula so far. We'll see how it wraps up, but a very exciting uh, year looking forward to. And, uh, on that note, plugging the fact that we will have a special episode, it's not going to be the next episode after you hear this episode. But uh, episode 76 is going to be a 2019 review episode talking about our top five TV shows of the year. Uh, so that's something to get excited about as we uh, don't get the chance to talk about TV too much on the podcast. So look forward to that.
1: Yeah. And stay tuned. Oscar pool will be launching in the next couple of days. So
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for to Scott for that, who uh, sets up runs that. That's very exciting. Uh, uh, everyone don't just pick the new york times which is what we learned if you listen to our special episode what jeremy rubel did last year he just picked the new york times picks uh and apparently uh beat everyone so uh either pick the new york times picks if you want to tie with jeremy rubel this year for that but scott with that uh where can people find you on twitter
1: at scarby dent
0: awesome and i can be found at shelton 2013 on twitter where you can also find our podcast at, at mediaplugpods love it if you gave us a follow over there we'd love it even more however if you check this out on our podcast patreon page at www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods where there are a bunch of different reward tiers for you to check out depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast and we'd really appreciate it even if it's only at the one dollar level that that helps us out again that's www.patreon.com slash mediaplugpods check it out for yourself if you choose not to support us over on patreon however that's totally fine you can still find us on apple Podcasts, spotify and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed us as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience in what is essentially season three of something like it Scott, as we start the new year. All right. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with what is probably our final 2019 movie that we'll talk about. Maybe we get to a portrait of a lady on fire if it's really slow in February, but I doubt it. I really doubt it. Uh, That's Just Mercy, the Jamie Foxx, and Michael B. Jordan, Brian Stevenson biopic. And, uh, you know, speaking of Just Mercy, probably what the Academy needs after some of the nominations they just got. They just let out today. They they need some mercy. Uh, But with that, and until next time, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton.
1: Thanks for listening.